DCM works. I'm here to set the record straight. Hey guys, David here. Once again, I always do my best to try and keep these brief, but that never happens. It's it's a nice aspiration, though. I'm, I'm working towards it. Um, so I just got back from Melbourne, uh, which is where this interview takes place. Uh, it's with Gabriel Bergmoser, um, dear friend of mine and amazing artist, creator, and writer. Um, you can find him at Movie Maintenance uh, from the Santa Pants Radio Guys, that podcast over there. Uh, or if you want to order his book, which is what we end up discussing uh, for most of this podcast, Boone Shepherd, uh, you can at bellfrogbooks.com and you can grab the ebook um, or you can get a hard copy mailed to you. Uh, and I believe there will be a distribution list of the bookstores where you can actually grab that um, that will be posted up there soon as well. Um, I really enjoyed this interview. I had a great time in Melbourne, and I wanted to say a big thank you to Gabe for his hospitality, and a big shout-out to April for doing an amazing job uh, with, with the book launch and everyone who was there. And yeah, I um, I felt like I was yelling, but uh, I hope you guys really enjoy this one. I had We had a ball putting it together, so without further ado... Uh, here is Gabriel Bergmoser and myself talking about Boone Shepherd. And a quick warning, this does contain spoilers for the book. Um, I have put, I will put in timestamps for when those spoilers occur, but just so you're aware, if you haven't read it, um, this may contain some spoilers, so enjoy. This is Christopher Walken, here to warn you that this contains some explicitly foul language. And if you don't like that, then I'll put my foot... In your throat. The soundtrack's amazing. Yeah. The visuals are very, like, well done. And, like, the <laughs> gameplay is super fun. <laughs> and, like, because those three things are there, it's, like, it's exceptionally good. Hey, I could do it in a heartbeat and make millions, but it would feel like gouging my soul out. Yeah. Jurassic Park's a little more like DDR. If Shrek is a very tough creature, can he actually own land and want to kick them off? Where did that come from? You have to make a lot of shit up to make good art. Yeah. That's just the truth. Hey guys, my name is David. Wow, that's not even how I start the podcast. Solid start. (laughs) It's been that kind of a day. Um, I'm joined by returning guest, Gabe Bergmoser. Hey, great to be back. And now famous published author and rock star. Well, not any of those things. Well, really. at, least, the published at least the published author that's, thing. Yeah, that, that, that's a real thing. The rest of it's aspirational. Uh, exactly. Like, it's you've fake got to aim, you make it, man. Aim high. That's what that's I said. That's it. That's it. That would be exactly what I keep doing. So Boone Shepherd. It's Boone Shepherd. I've it's read it. It's done. A, it's a book and it's fun and it's exciting. Uh, so we're going to talk a bit about that, some of some other stuff that I've got on the cards. Um, but I just kind of wanted to get an idea of where your headspace has been at today. Um, oh man! Well, aside I mean, from tired because we were out pretty late last night. Yeah, but, look, the book launch. The book launch was great. Um, I think overall I was just, just really stoked with how it all worked out. I mean, like you know, you sort of. I think the thing is, you know, you see on Facebook events, you've got a certain number of people saying they're coming. You're like, okay, maybe a quarter of those people will turn up. Mm-hmm. But then, like you know, the venue was packed out. Yeah, there I mean, was no from, no room. Yeah, no, much. and it was great. Like it was. Um, I was a bit nervous going in, and I think it's it's funny because my background is in being on stage. And I don't really act anymore, so it's funny nowadays. Whenever I have to sort of get up for things like this, I, I get really terrible stage fright. Mm. And it's like I've forgotten that I'm actually quite good at public speaking, and like I have, <laughs> I have no problem being in front of an audience. Yeah, but and I forget it until I'm up there. And I'm like, oh wait, that's right. No, I, I know. And then what it's I'm just doing. natural. I'm, I'm fine. It's totally okay. But um, I think that's normal. Yeah, like, I think you so. know, it's like, not unusual. But yeah, I was terrified until I sort of got up, and then it was all fine. Um, and then like you know, we kept a brief, and the book launch happened, and now. Yeah, I don't know. Today's been today's been really interesting. Like I sort of, 
had a chat to the publisher this morning and she told me that her young cousin who got a copy of the book last week has already read it twice. Oh, wow. He's okay. 10, so that bodes well. Hey, that's well, good. Yeah. I think. Um, I, I think. I hope. I hope so. That or it's... Yeah, that's that's a good thing. Yeah, Definitely. no, I think, yeah. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I think that's a good thing no matter what twice way you is, it. Twice is a lot. Twice is a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's not a long book, but I wouldn't read it twice. Um, <laughs> like, I but, haven't even read it. Like, yeah, exactly. I wrote it, didn't read but, it. Um, but yeah, no, so, so like, and it, it was funny because, like, today I think it really started to sink in. Like, I kind of got up this morning and I was looking at all the photos from the book launch and I was like, oh, I, I guess I'm a published author. I guess I actually am a real writer. Mm, that happened. That, that, like all, that, that all occurred. And it, yeah. it was sort of like, it was weird because it wasn't like a big kind of explosive, oh my God, it was like a, oh, no, I, I guess, I guess that thing that I've wanted all my life is actually a thing that is now real. Yeah, that exists. Yeah, and it's like all these people now. I mean, Boone Shepherd is something that I've had in my head for so long. And over the process of writing the five books, I didn't really show them to anyone. Yeah. So apart from one or two sort of choice people. So it's funny because Boone Shepherd's kind of been in my head for a while as this whole, not only just an idea, but actually as a whole manuscript series saga. And it's all been, yeah, it's kind of been sitting there for so long that kind of seeing all these people going home with books last night. And I'm yeah. like, oh, they're going to read it. It's actually going out in the world. People are going to sort of see what I've been for better or worse, people are going to mm. see what I've been hunched over my laptop smashing out for so long. So, Do you get that feeling, um, this is something that I get whenever we do scripts, is sort of, you kind of, you kind of trust them, you kind of trust the ownership to everyone. When you, when you release it, you kind of go, this is no longer just my thing. This is now yeah, a shared thing. There's definitely a bit of that. And I actually, I had this really funny kind of moment the night before the book launch when I, I was at home and I was kind of like, you know, bumming around. Game of Thrones had just come out. Mm. And I was going to watch the new episode. I kind of had it ready to go. And then suddenly I just had this feeling of like, oh, well, you know, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be a published author and Boone Shepard's going to be in the world and people are going to, like, money will change hands yeah, for, my, for this for, product. for my good that, that I've I, produced. I guess is a product now, not just sort of a selection of scribbling saved on my computer. So so I actually, I put on my blog, I actually wrote, this it sounds so corny, but I actually wrote a letter <laughs> to Boone. Yeah. Like, just, just to say, like, you know, I mean, you've been mine for so long, but now you're not. And I suppose, like, whenever I do a play, the way I think about it is... And it's always funny, because actors in plays, they come to you and they're like, oh, what do you think, like, what do you think the character would do and stuff like that? And I'm like, I don't know. Mm. You've spent more time with this than I have. Yeah. Like, you've spent... The fact is, you know, you've spent more time with that character. It, t- it takes me a couple of weeks to write a play, you know? Like, you spend months in rehearsal development. Yeah. By the time play goes on, the actors know the character better than you do. It's the directors best. know the material better than you do. Yeah. They pick up on subtext that was not intentional. And so the way I've always seen it is that in process, like, in the process of writing a play, it belongs to you. In the process of rehearsals, it belongs to the director. Sure. In the process of performance, it belongs to the actors, and everything after that belongs to the audience. Yeah. And... In kind of the same way, I guess now this is a new territory territory for me, but like kind of the same way with a book, like in the process of writing, it was mine. In the process of editing and publishing, it was the publisher's. And now it- Suddenly it's everyone's. Belongs to everyone else. Yeah. And I guess like all I can do is kind of sit here and there's there's nothing I can change. There's nothing I can tweak. There's nothing I can do. It's mm. out there in the world, flaws and all, you know? How did you know it was done? Because that's a question I get a lot. People are like, how do you know when a manuscript is finished? I don't. Mm. That's I mean, I, I, I don't. I mean, that. if I'm happy with it, that's that's about the best I can hope for. Um, and I mean, look, I'm not I'm not really a perfectionist. Like, mm. you know, there's that cliche of sort of the perfectionist writer. I'm, I've never really been like that. Like, for me, if I finish a manuscript, I read over it and I'm like, yeah, you know what? Good. Like, there are a couple of things I've changed here and there. There are a couple mm. of things that probably need work. But I mean, like, with Boone Shepard, it was one of those things where I finished the first book. And it was different doing the second book because the second book was one where I finished it and I was like, 
that is a total mess that is going to require so much work. Yep, I know that one. But, um, <laughs> that feeling. but with the first, the third, and the fourth, they're all books where I finished them, I read over them, and I was like, you know what, more or less, that's pretty much what I was going for. Yep. Like, the intention I had in that book has been realized, and any of the stuff that needs to be fixed will be fixed in the editing process. Yeah. And so, you know, there was plenty of stuff that was rewritten and tweaked and fixed up during the process of editing and all of that. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess the moment it was done was the moment it was bound and put into my hands. Yeah, that's, yeah. Fa- well, that's fair enough. I, I guess. That's that's, probably, yeah, that's a good way of thinking me, about it. really, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because, I, I, I don't know, I always had this mentality of, like, sometimes books are better. And sometimes it's generally true of most arts. Sometimes it's better when it's not completely perfect and it has some rough edges here and there. Well, have you ever read... um? You ever read a book called Maestro by Peter Goldsworthy? I haven't, no. It was a class text that I had to study in year 11, I think, for literature. And of course, like like all class texts, I think there's a certain stigma that comes with them. And, you know, you'll never read them again. You'll never look at them again. You can't enjoy them again. it takes away all the joy. Because, you know, you've had to study them and it's taken (laughs) away all the joy before, you know, you get to a point where you actually, like I have, where you actually enjoy studying and analyzing stuff. But Maestro was, it's a little novella, Australian novella. And I read it when I was quite, like in year 11 so I would have been maybe 16, 17 and Mm. it was a book that really stuck with me because of what it kind of said about art and retrospectively the themes were quite on the nose in that the themes are just directly stated in the text but pretty much it's about a kid who wants to learn piano he learns piano with this eccentric old Viennese World War 2 survivor your mentor character Holocaust survivor or something I don't quite remember and basically he spends all his life striving for for perfection Mm. like nothing's ever good enough he's always trying to get his music technically perfect and in the end what he kind of takes away from it is he goes yeah I've become technically perfect but technical perfection has no heart has no art like it's better to have something that is beautiful and messy and has a lot of heart and a lot of feeling Mm. and a lot of emotion in it but has flaws than it is to have something that is technically perfect but actually soulless but it has I mean because that's because people are like that you exactly. Know, it's exactly. where these weird, messy things... My favorite book in the world is so flawed. Like, my all-time favorite book is a book where I read over it, and I'm just like, man, it is just... It's... it's you read it, and like, the, the female characters are terribly sketched. Yep. All of them kind of just exist for the main character to kind of drool over and then inevitably have sex with. Um, some yep. of the plot points and twists that happen in the book are just ridiculous. Like, this is quite a down-to-earth book, but mm. there are these moments where it's like, what the some of the villain characters are so broadly drawn, <laughs> which is it's, it's really at odds with some of the other characters who are like actually quite beautifully sort of put together. Yeah, they're rendered in, in exactly. Detail. But then some yeah. of the villainous characters, like nobody in the world is this villainous. Yes, and um, and also like you know a lot of the dialogue, like characters who are not meant to be intelligent or educated or anything, come out with the wittiest, most like oh, profound, yeah. verbose things. They start sounding like and Oscar Wilde. All or of that is stuff that I read, and I'm like, that's. But the fact is. Every time I read that book, and last time I read it was last Christmas, I cry like a baby. Yeah. Every time, because what it's about and what it sort of says to me still always hits me so hard. And that is worth so much more than any, like, I totally technical agree. flaws that kind of film school or uni would advise yeah. you against, you know? And I think there's, there's, a real, um, there's a real lack of that conversation that happens in the professional sphere of, of, of writing, at least, from sort of particularly for people who are learning to write, they're in university, they're in these degrees, they don't, th- those conversations aren't had. Exactly. Because, you know, you're being, you're being assessed on your writing instead of, I think it's quite a weird thing to, to sort of assess someone's writing because, you know, when you learn to write, and when I say I learn to write, I don't mean like when you're a kid, I mean when you're an adult and you're actually, you know, becoming a novelist or, or whatever it is that you're doing, learning to write is about writing. Yeah, you know, you, that's you, it. That's, that's you, the only you, way to do it. You, you write and you write and you write until you write well. And look, the thing is, like, I, I still remember so distinctly this 
uni class I did. I think it was the first playwriting class I did when I was at Melbourne Uni. And the tutor put down in front of us a play by Samuel Beckett, who wrote Waiting for Godot. Yep. And I hate Samuel Beckett. I really do not <laughs> yeah. like Samuel Beckett. I, I find absurdism... I don't get absurdism. I would rather just be told a story. And so, you know, she put this out in front of us and she was like, okay, writing exercise every week, writing exercise, write like this, write like this. And she would give us texts to imitate. Oh, and they okay. were always Samuel Beckett. And eventually... I'm like, look, I'm, I'm not in those circumstances. I'm not that outspoken a person. I'd rather sit at the back and not say anything and do my own thing. Yeah. But at a certain point, it got so frustrating. I had to put up my hand and be like, so basically you just want us to imitate Samuel Beckett. And she was like, oh, well, this is what good writing is. And I was like, but what if that's not what I want to write? Because it wasn't. And she was like, but but this is what good writing is. And I was like, but but it's not the only form of it good writing. It doesn't work like and that. And what was so refreshing when I got to Victorian College of the Arts was that they said, okay, we want to know what you want to write. Yeah. We're going to take what you want to write and the stuff you want to create and your voice, and we're going to teach you how to make that better. How to, we're going how to teach to, you how yeah. to hone it and learn things like structure, learn things like how to get your themes nice and clear, mm-hmm. learn all yeah. of that stuff. And it made all the difference because it wasn't about trying to enforce a style or a way of doing things on you. Like a rubric. Exactly. You know? It was like, it's different for everyone. Everyone has a different approach. Everyone who is a serious writer and who works it long enough has their own voice and their mm. own style and their own, I guess, if you want to be cheesy about it, kind of soul they have to bring to it. Well, no, it's all I about think, taking that and just yeah. honing it and I don't, learning I don't how to bring if, that out. I don't think that's cheesy necessarily. I think a good, a good metaphor that someone once told me is, um, writing is, uh, writing a book is like building a house. Um, there are a whole bunch of elements you have to do. Like, you have to do walls, you have to do foundations, you have to do plumbing, electricity, or whatever. Um, and when you're first learning to write, you might be really good at putting up the walls. Like, you're an amazing carpenter. You put up really good walls. But you you don't know plumbing, so your plumbing yeah. is terrible. Um, and then several years later, you learn how to plumb well. And then well, you learn how to do electricity, electric, you know. It's funny you should say that, because I've actually got... I've got them sort of in my head. I've got kind of, I think it's five distinct stories of mine. Like, I, I think of my writing life as it has progressed in phases... Sure. Like there was sort of my initial phase when I wrote my first novel when I was 13 and what came after that. And then there was something I wrote at a certain point, maybe about a year and a half or two years after that, that was a really, really clear shift. Okay. So when I finished this work, something was like, oh no, now I've actually learned something new. Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing was just, you know, just writing whatever came to, came to my head and like trying to write stories. And the second, the, the first major shift was when I was like, this is actually how I write about things that are meaningful to me. Yes. And then the next shift I had after that was, oh, this is actually how I write character. And the next shift after that was, ah, oh, this is how I write dialogue mm. that actually has its own style and Absolutely. cadence to it. And I think like, and then it was like, ah, oh, this is how I actually make my prose pretty strong mm. and so on and so forth. No, so yeah, I, I completely, I get what you mean. The works that have made those shifts for me, and like they weren't necessarily the best stories I've ever written, but they were really pivotal in teaching me certain things that I now try to kind of bring to the table with everything I write. I, yeah, no, I, I get exactly what you mean. I think, you know, going, going back to that idea of, of, of that teacher and the way that she was approaching it, she was basically saying to you, um, even though that you have, you've got, you're in your head, you're building a house that looks the way that you want a house to be built. She's like, yeah, but do the walls like Beckett did. And you're like, yeah. but you're like, but they won't fit. And she's like, no, but do the walls. Exactly. And exactly. you're like, but it won't, it won't fit. Like the house won't work. And then you get this, a weird house at the end that doesn't make any sense. So I think... I think there is a time and a place to learn how to imitate other styles. And I think everyone starts off writing imitating. I think so. But like I, I, don't, younger, I, really, you know? I really like take a lot of... I mean, I, I get it to a degree because it's a university course. Most people there are doing it just as an elective for fun. Most people, like most people in those creative writing classes at uni are not going to go out and become writers. You or know? If, you know, even and if that's their intention, they've not written much before. Yeah, and so like, I, I get it. It, just, it was frustrating to me because 
I think, and I said this in the last pod, in the last interview we did, that like the fact was I was never good at anything else. So there was really no choice for me but to become a writer. Yeah. So what sort of, what was always frustrating for me was the fact that by the time I started doing those courses, it was still very much a work in progress, but I had started to develop my own voice and my own things I wanted to write about, my own concerns and everything. Mm. And it was so frustrating because I came with these classes and instead of saying, hey, let's take what you've already got mm. and teach you how to develop that better. It was saying, no, we're going to tell you how to do things. And the difference for me with VCA was we're going to give you the tools to mm. build the walls in the house. Yeah, they, they not, give you the utility belts, Exactly. You know? Not tell you what kind of walls your house has to have. And that, I mean, that's, that's as well. It's like a hammer and nail problem. They're like, hey, you've got, you know, they view writing as a problem. Yeah, it's a problem yeah. to be solved. Where, you know... I mean, I, it is, but only in the editing process. Yes, but... I mean, it's but, sometimes in the writing process, but I mean, you've got to have fun while you're but, doing but, it. But like, the, editing, the editing is when you, you paint the house and you add the garden beds and you do... You pave the driveway. Like, it's the touches on the end that make it into a house, not just a building. Yeah, absolutely. That's sort of... Absolutely. You know, and, and I, I don't know, I was, I was really... I like that metaphor a lot because I think for people that, you know, they're not necessarily creative, that you know, that's not what they do professionally... It's really hard to kind of talk about these abstract things that oh yeah that for no, writing because you know for writers like we we have an immediate dialogue because we've been doing this for years like oh, we know and yeah and so then you know someone will, someone will ask me they're like oh well, what kind of stuff do you write um, and a classic writing sort of uh, someone someone who hasn't written for very long or if they have they're sort of still learning um, they'll kind of hesitate and they'll preface everything I don't know if you've noticed this but you're like okay so what do you write and they'll go. Oh well, it's kind of it's it's not really sci-fi, but it's kind of sci-fi. Like they'll they'll do this sort of. Um, but I think I actually think everybody does that when a story is still in progress. It's a defense like mechanism. Just, it, it is a bit. It is a bit. But like I think you know, when I've only just started a story and I'm still feeling my way through, I'll be like, like with Boone Shepard, I reckon in the early days with that, I would have been like, oh, it's sort of this, and it's it's sort of this, and it's sort of because I didn't really know. Whereas yeah. now I can tell you the drop of the hat. It's like, well, actually, somebody gave me the perfect description of it this morning when mm. um, a friend of mine who'd bought at the book launch, he messaged me and he was about halfway through and he was like, so it's Tintin with attitude. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, sure. why not? Yeah. Sure. But yeah. like, I mean, my pictures, I'm straight away like, okay, basically it's Tintin meets Doctor Who with the tone of Lemony Snicket. I'm pretty That's spot on. Yeah, pretty much. And it's like, I know that now. I know what my story is mm. now. But it took me ages to get to that point. But mm. I even think like now, I mean, I would consider myself at this point, you know, for my age and where I'm at, relatively accomplished and I've done quite a lot of writing in my life but even now if I'm only just starting a story I would rather not it's like at uni where they talk about you know you have to know what your controlling idea is what your theme is yes. what your sort of story is about yeah, yeah, yeah. and I would rather come into a story with less knowledge of that and, and less understanding of what it is from and, the text. and learn because mm. I actually think if you go in there with a really constrained idea of what the story has to be mm you don't leave as much room for it to organically change and go in better places. Yeah. I and mean, sometimes, you know, you're fighting against where the story wants to go and you've got to trust the story. But there's, you know, I, I fundamentally, like I agree f for me fundamentally, that is true. Like you do have to trust your work, but for some people, uh, you know, there's different writers. Like if you look at someone like Flaubert, who, you know, his philosophy was, uh, he, he was a French writer, um, famous for his control of language. So he, sure. he believed in uh, le mot juste, which is the just word. So he believed that in every sentence and paragraph, there is a way to make it perfect, like language-wise. So he wrote Madame Bovary, which is a story about a housewife in country France who has a bunch of affairs. Yeah. Um, it's, not the, it's not a very exciting story. Like, it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's not earth-shattering, it's not James Bond, but what he does incredibly well is he's able to manipulate the language in like it's so concise like every sentence and paragraph is perfect like because I, I read it in French because I, I, at that time I spoke French fluently sure um, and I suddenly that was the first time where I realized that 
the way that I write, because we, you know, I think it's a personality thing. We write stories, you know, we write about characters and these sort of the the, the passionate things that we can imagine. But yeah, this guy yeah. had taken. I was just I was so stunned by how he'd taken language that you know we use and manipulate to create stories, and he went, "What if I could do it perfectly?" And he did, yeah, and it, okay. it, it turned out to be an amazing book. So I think that's like the flip side of there's there's that kind of a writer who oh sure I mean know. it's so different for everyone. I mean that's that's the reality of it. Like I I do have a lot of people coming to me and be like they ask for advice and stuff like that, and it's that and I'm sorry that that sounds so it's just it's only started to happen kind of recently. <laughs> I know what you with, mean with the book but, and everything. Well, even and even people you meet who hear even if you you know not in the context of like you being in the public face as a writer, even people you meet on writing courses, if you've written more than them, they might come to you and ask for yeah, advice and, and stuff. Yeah, and it's just a funny situation because, you know, people ask for advice, and I'm like, man, what works for me might not work for you. Yeah. Like, my, my friend Sean, who you can hear over on Movie Maintenance, if you listen to it, the Sans Pants Radio podcast, I'm often on, He he's an amazing, brilliant writer. Mm. And he comes up with, like, some of the stuff of his I've read is just unbelievable. And the ideas he comes up with are just incredible. And he has one of the strongest understandings of structure yes i've ever seen which mm. i lack but sean like i've i've been to his house and that guy like see i just sit down and smash it out i just sit down and like have a rough idea have a rough beach sort of beat sheet of what happens yeah and i'm like these are the points i have to hit they might change whatever if they you do just that's cool i'll work with it yeah. and i just start smashing it out and have fun with it and let it go where it needs to go whereas sean like i've been around to his place and he had like the screenplay he was finishing for the victorian college arts masters his wall was covered in like the the five act structure journey beats for every oh, yeah. single character from yep. major to minor it was covered in sort of different elements of things that might be seen in his story and it's like I could just imagine him sitting there like pondering this wall kind of taking it all in yeah. and the work this guy does like breaking everything down beforehand but it works like it oh, yeah. really pays off in mm. really really solid sort of brilliantly structured mm. really well tempered and well worked stories Whereas, you know, mine can be a bit more fluffy. Uh, mine, my stories can be a lot fluffier and there's a lot of um, a lot of kind of stuff I have to edit around. Yeah, it's, it's, you, but, you know, it hard, it's hard and fast is how yeah. I describe your writing. Yeah, you exactly. Know. But I mean, that's it's different for everyone. So like, you know, my approach is not his approach and it, yeah. but it works for both of us in different ways. Yeah, because so. I mean, you know, I, the, the obvious advice I usually give is write, but for someone like him, that's not true. Yeah. So then I, I go from like, oh, this universal piece of advice that I give people should work for everyone, but it also doesn't. Because for him, it's not right, it's, you know, maybe it's visualized, maybe it's lay every like you know, his he structures everything first. For other people it's just you've just gotta get into it. Um for some people, like um someone I used to know when she wrote, um, she would sort of spend a really long time on her first draft writing the sentences. So she would sure. you know, um she would uh, you know, spend a day writing and she'd get a few paragraphs out, but they were like perfect. And she never had to go back and edit because that was how she wrote. Yeah. So absolutely. she'd sit there, you know, absolutely. she's not sitting there writing, rewriting, she's just thinking about the sentence turning it over, finding what she wants, and then writing it down. But that would drive me insane. I just need to go, like, I need to be well, in it, you know? Look, there's, there's... I suppose you kind of win some, you lose some, really, because, like, somebody who takes a lot of time structuring and working on themes and really meticulously pre-planning might come up with a more... I guess a more kind of immediately solid product. Yeah. But someone like me who's very prolific, I, I, have, a, I have a huge output. I'm putting out heaps of, like, plays and stories and stuff all yeah. the time. But not all of them are good. No, it's not it's all of them are worthwhile. It's a step, because it's just like spilling out. The, the, I think the only difference I actually reckon, apart from obviously, I understand my craft a lot more now. But realistically, the only difference I think between now and when I was maybe like fifteen is the fact that now I know which stories are good and which ones aren't. 
Like I'll yeah, still buy things where I look I know at it and it's like, oh man, that's not good. Yeah. That's not good at all. What, what were you doing? You're better than this. What was I thinking? Exactly. But like, you know, I, but now I know, like now I, I would look at that and be like, I'm not ready to show that to anyone. And you know, that's, I suppose the key difference, but yeah. I, that's kind of the we have double-edged to... sword of being really productive is that not everything you produce is going to be worthwhile. But I think that's, I mean, I, you know, the, the old philosophy is like, um, when you write, you keep 20% and you throw it 80%. Oh, yeah. But if yeah, you yeah. don't do the 100% of the work, then you're not going to get the 20% of got? good. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. It, you know, you, you have to... It's bum and chair. You have to write. That's it. Well, I mean, yeah, I think you just have to sit down, just do it, apply yourself, and what comes out might not be good, but, I mean, try to enjoy it while you're doing it because if you don't enjoy it while you're doing it, why, why are you doing, doing it? it? There's there's yeah. a moment... I, I don't know if you get this. You probably do because we, we write in similar ways, but... um. There's a moment when I'm in the middle of... If I've sat down to write, whatever the context is, um, and I'll hit a point where I get into the rhythm and I just forget that I'm writing and it just kind of... Oh, yeah. It yeah, just, yeah. You just... you as Stephen King calls it... Um, you can't. You kind of you move through the page. And yeah, you, you no, inhabit the world. Well, that was in misery, and that mm. was a moment where I read that, and I was like, yeah. "That's what it is." Because it's it absolutely is. We talked about Stephen King to sort of put it perfectly into words. What I cannot explain. Yeah, he's. A, I mean, he's he's got. He's really tapped into his craft because he's been doing it for so long that he gets every yeah. part of it. You know, and it's true. Like you know, you do sort of fall into it and just let this. I mean, the best, the first warning sign for me that a story isn't right is if I'm not gripped by it. Yes, because if I'm not yeah. gripped by a story, how can I expect anyone else to be? Yeah, you know, I, I, we were, I wrote a prequel for this series that we've been looking at, I've been working on for years now, um, and I didn't, I didn't, I was like, okay, this is, it's fine, like there's nothing wrong with it, um, but I'm not gonna. It was the first book we were gonna publish actually, um, and we were c- completely ready to go, like we'd gone through the processes of everything, and um, I was looking at the final draft, and I was like. I I'm not excited by this. Like it yeah, doesn't excite me. Yeah, I mean, it's we'll, we'll keep it and it'll be canon. Maybe we put it out later, or whatever. But it it doesn't it doesn't grip me like it needs to. And yeah, it needs. I mean, you it's know? such a. It is. It does sound kind of arrogant to be like, oh, I just it's so gripping. But it's like, look, if I can if I sit down and can burn through my own story, because trust me, the flaws that you people are noticing reading my stuff, yeah. I'm noticing a hundred times more. Yeah, because you but see if something it, you can know? like grab me and make me want to read more and feel like an easy read to me. Yeah. And even more so, like, in the writing process, I'm writing it and it's flowing and I'm like, fuck, I, I just want to sit down it and write works. the next chapter. Yeah. I just want to sit down and write the next thing. I want to spend as much time as possible in this world with these characters. Yeah. Chances are it's probably going to be a pretty decent read for the people reading it. And at the, even if it isn't, you still get that moment of enjoyment. Absolutely. And so many people Absolutely. don't get that Which from like, what they do for a living. So just, have, like, I mean, that's, I think that's the big thing. It's like, being a writer, it's like, there's such a cliche about, like, the tortured artist hunched over the laptop going through endless cigarettes and guzzling scotch and well, glaring wait, at the computer in fairness we both do do that well yeah, so, sure why not <laughs> you, but, like, but, it's... but I'm not but I don't but I, you know I personally I no, have fun when I write but I don't think it's it's not like, a toil it's this amazing it's not a toil thing. it's like I sit down I just enjoy it like I there's nothing I enjoy more than sitting down and just doing yeah. non-stop writing just, just doing getting non-stop lost writing in. good work writer that um, was those were those, those were English po- words yep po- mm, 10 poetry, out of 10 poetry in motion well you're not a poet. You're a you're Pretty a poet. That's yeah. mm, that much is obvious. Okay, so switching gears for a minute. Um, Boone Shepherd. Yeah. So talk about. I want to do non-spoilers and then spoilers because I got some stuff that I want to talk about. Awesome. Um, awesome. So, and this isn't a spoiler, but just structurally, the book is split into three parts. Yes. Um, and part two is a flashback, effectively. Um, I, I hesitate to use the word flashback because I feel like that has connotations. It's yeah. Um, it's. It's it's it chronologically occurs before part one. Yes. Um, yes. And it's not just 
that it's chronologically different. It's very thematically different. Absolutely. The first part. Absolutely. So, without too many spoilers, or without any spoilers, if possible, um, when you were kind of approaching, like, did, did the novel begin in that structure? Was that natural? Okay. Or how did, how did that way, come about? Because it's look, quite unusual. Yeah, it is unusual. And the way it happens was... Basically, the very, very early drafts of Boone Shepherd were written in high school. Mm. And originally, I wrote three 20,000-word stories. Mm. And the whole middle section, the flashback section, was a 20,000-word novella in and of itself. Sure. And the first and third part of what has become this book mm. were their own novel as well. Sure. So oh, what okay. kind of happened was that when I came to writing this one... This one was intended to be the second in the series. So the first one was called The Broken Record. It was sort of a adventure mystery that kind of introduced you to Boone, introduced you to Prometheus, yeah, introduced you to the, the world, all of that. Yeah. And we ended up scrapping it because the second book kind of got into the meat of the series. And so when I was approaching writing the second book, I was trying to think, how do I incorporate the flashbacks? And at first I thought, do I do flashbacks all kind of through it? And then I thought, what if I just have this section kind of in the middle mm. where we see what what kind of what happened before and I actually think the reason I think it works and it is extremely unusual but the way I tried to approach it was that three parts the first part opens with a question and the yes. question basically is who is Boone Shepherd and what is this book he's trying to hunt down this book yep. that has this mystery in it that he is determined for nobody to find out yep. what is this mystery and that's what should be the question in the audience's head as they're reading the first part and it is so yep. good and so as it goes on and he's trying to find this book he gets given this job where he has to go into the Scottish Highlands and investigate this mystery and the way I tried to structure that first part or I guess tried to shape that first part mm. was that the predominant question in the audience's mind should not have been what is this mystery he's hunting in Scotland because the whole time Boone doesn't care about he's the mystery thinking, in Scotland. His mind is elsewhere. He's thinking about the book. He's thinking, I want to get this over and done with <clears> so I can yeah. go back to what I care about. Absolutely. So I deliberately shaped it that way so in the audience's head, they're not thinking, oh, I can't wait for him to get to Scotland. They're thinking, what's going on with the book? With and the tension is, what's actually going on? So when yeah. Promethea confronts him at the end of the first part, lays the book out and says, I've read it, I know what's going on here. That would count as spoilers, by the way, just if we're... Okay. I, we we be, kind of well. Should okay. we just dive straight into spoilers? Because I yeah. don't think anyone's going to be listening to this if they no, haven't no, read true. the book. Okay, fine. We'll do spoilers. Um, yeah, okay. Sorry. So, so you, you were saying. Okay, so Promethea confronts Boone, sure. puts, out, puts the book in front of him, sort of says, I've read this and I think you're a fraud and I think you've taken your cues from this and whatever. Yeah. And then we flashback. Yes. Now, the way I tried to structure the flashback parts in the original, very crappy high school version, mm. um, we saw a lot more of Boone and Marby's adventures. Okay. So we saw, basically, we saw, I think it was structured in a way where every chapter was like almost a different short story and a different adventure they went on. Okay. And everyone was sort of, one was Jekyll and Hyde, one was Sweeney Todd, one yeah. was, everyone was sort of a different 1800s horror novel being accidentally inspired by their adventures. Yeah. When I came to this, it was funny because on the one hand, it was like this flashback sequence is paying off the questions that the audience had in their head in the first part. Mm. But at the same time, the audience is going to be keenly aware that this is not the main plot. This is flashback. Yes. So you're getting your answers, but this isn't the main plot of the book. This isn't the main yeah, it's not the thing th that's it's going on. It's not the on. thrust. It's the, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it sort of became this really tricky thing of doing it in this certain way where it was fast-paced enough. It was burning through enough plot. And there's that sort of montage bit in the middle where Boone kind of talks reflectively about everything him and Marvia are going through. Yeah. Which is sort of like uh, Joel Zamet kind of described from Sandspans Radio kind of described it as a montage, and that's sort of how I wanted it to be. Like, mm, it feels like of, a montage. If it was a movie, it would be a montage of like different clips of Boone and Marby's different adventures. To yeah, yeah, point yeah. A to point B, and it, it feels. Um, I was trying to think of a way to put because I was, I was reading it on the train this morning, and I was sort of turning it over my head, and like it feels, 
It feels like a montage, but it kind of it's like a thematic montage. Yeah, that's that's know? kind of that's kind of exactly what it is. Um, and that was, yeah, that that sequence. So basically, the whole point of that was just kind of to, kind of to get that flashback, sort of flashback uh, sequence, I guess, for want of a better word, mm. from point A to point B as quickly as possible, so we could get back into the meat of it. Yeah. And obviously, there were still big questions to be answered, and there were still kind of big things going on and everything. But yeah, by the time the flashback stuff wraps up, I think it's just over the halfway point of the book. Yeah, so it's, it's actually the shortest. Of... It's the shortest sec. Well, actually, I think the, the first, first part's the shortest. Yeah. yeah, but the second part feels like, you know, because the first part ends on the question, it feels more, like it it feels bigger. Yeah, absolutely. So what happens? What you know, my experience when I was reading the second part is I felt like what it ended up doing is it ended up sort of, it just draws your attention back to the question like the whole yeah. time. Good, you know? which is kind of what, what I'm and then And then when you get back to part three, you're like, oh, I think, okay, now things are going to happen. And again, then the trick know? in part three was that I was like, okay, so now we're running a risk because if I've set it up so the audience doesn't care about what's going on in Scotland, yeah. they care about this sort of question of who is Boone. Then you've got to make whatever's happen, answer, happening like, in Scotland real impressive. Exactly. So that's why immediately in the first chapter back mm. after the flashback, I have them captured, I have them taken to Babel, I have them in there straight away. So it's like, got now the question answers. is, how are they going to get out of this? What's going on? And then, mm. of course, at the very ends, it all ties together because everything mm. going on in the 1800s actually does strongly tie Which, in with... I guess, realistically, like, the... You know, if we're talking about structure, the, the inciting incident um, is the book... Is, is him going after the book. Like, the inciting incident of the novel, structurally, is him going after the yeah. book, you know. But what what that ends up doing is it means that the middle build, the whole thing is, who is he? What yeah. is the book gonna do? And then you know you get these moments. I don't I don't know if this was your intention, but I felt I felt this like very tactile um, sensation of periodically throughout the flashback. It felt like you know initially that Marby might she she might know something about him initially like. <sighs> That was sort of a, you know, just from just from the, the dialogue and stuff, there were these little bits where, you know, the minute she walks in and, uh, you know, she has her eyes wide. And that to me, they were really small and subtle. Yeah, good. Um, good. And I'm you glad go, you noticed You go, is it because he's weird or does she know? Like, it, yeah, so I definitely got that impression. That's so, so good to hear. Which, although that, that being said, I'm reading it as a writer, so... Because that I'm, pays off in a really big yes, way. Yes, it does. Down the line. Oh, Oh, okay. In book three, oh, that has a right. very, very that has huge. Oh, all right. Uh, see now, it's, now, now you got <laughs> yeah. me excited. Okay, so that being said, the you know we spoke about this last night, um, but I thought we'd revisit it um, now that you know we've taken a moment and we've we've breathed. Um, the book is filled with references and literary figures, and you know, as you said, the, the idea being that sort of boom would in, unintentionally inspire all of these famous yeah, novels. Yeah. Um, where did that idea come from? Like, how did that form for you? Honestly, um... God, I've just asked a writer where you get your ideas from. No, Jesus no, I mean, Christ. really, it was just... A th- <laughs> it was... It honestly was like kind of a holdover from... And look, this is a holdover in... That element is a holdover from when I wrote the first version when I was 16. Because at yeah. that time, I was really into those gothic horror novels. I loved Dorian Gray. I loved Jekyll and Hyde. I loved Dracula. I was mm. really into that stuff. And I think, and I said this at the book launch, it was a way for me to play in that playground with those characters without getting sued for plagiarism. Mm, yes. And also, I mean, look, I am not, I am not Boone Shepard. I am not, Boone Shepard is not meant to be me. No, he's, he's, he's not really an analogue for you. No, he's not. I, I, mean, I, well, he's, I was saying that Promethea is more an analogue for you than I, anyone. I think, look, in some way, I mean, look, every character you're ever going to write has elements of you. Oh, and there's sure. definitely a lot of me in Boone, but Boone is not meant to be an audience, uh, sorry, an author surrogate. Sure. He's not, and I know a lot of authors say, oh, the main character is me. It's like, I don't know, I don't think Boone Shepard is. Boone Shepard's a character who has a lot of me in him, mm. in the same way Prometheus does, in the same way a lot of other major characters sure. do. But Boone, no, Boone is not me. But 
as a proxy, it was kind of a fun way to, you know, sort of hang out with Oscar Wilde. Yeah, spend time with those people. And there's a bit in the second book, which it's, look, realistically, I can see the editor right now looking at it and being like, that's got to go. Where Boone... Um, Isn't that a good feeling? Boone though? gets, th- but it's, I really like it. It's Boone gets thrown from a flying casino in Las Vegas. Amazing. Falls through the sky in yep. the Nevada desert and is, his fall is broken by a really big campsite and he kind of bounces off and survives. Yep. And it's Jack Kerouac camping out in the desert That's who's amazing. gone trekking around. That's amazing. And there's this whole scene where Boone and Jack Kerouac just kind of sit by the campfire and they just talk. They just, and this, it's sort of like if you're going to go screenwriting terms it's sort of the all is lost moment it's sort of right before the third yeah, act's yeah, about to start yeah. and it's Boone being like you know there's all his friends are kind of being held captive up there the bad yeah. guys are about to win and he's kind of sitting there being like there's no way for me to get back up there's no way for me to stop it yeah. and him and Kerouac kind of had this really reflective moment where because the second book is all about Boone kind of learning to let people into his life yeah. and learning how to be friends with people mm. and learning how to open up and not be a solitary figure and so his friends are kind of in peril up there on this casino mm. and it's him kind of reflecting on his friends and talking about them and then Jack Kerouac kind of has a version of his I, I mean for anyone who's read On the Road that beautiful part where he talks about how the only people for him are the mad ones yeah. and it's kind of that sort of reflected back at Boone and that's kind of what galvanizes him to kind of go back and sort of save his own mad ones yeah. but I mean that's a whole sequence that was really just an excuse for me to be in a room well not to in a room to spend time in with a, them no I know what you mean by but, a campfire no, but I know with one of mean. my favourite writers you know? which is like, I mean that's such a I, like yeah I, I, it's hard to explain it because like from a craft perspective that's such a delightful thing to be able to do absolutely um, and I'm, I mean look the whole thing with Boone Shepard stuff is if it delighted me in writing it then it went in. And it because it showed, like, that's the thing. Like, you know, when something is written with passion, it, it shows. Like, it's not yeah, a yeah. tactile thing. It can't be like, oh, well, you can tell there's passion in it because of these paragraphs. It's just throughout. You can just yeah, sense which, it, you know. You know, it, again, it's just a process of throwing everything I like into a big pot and just having fun with it. So, like, I mean, a lot of the names of random side characters are references to things. Mm. Um, there's yeah <clears throat> oh yeah that's that's I've noticed that a oh, lot oh yeah and really like, as the series yeah. goes on there is more and more of that and there's more and more like side characters turning up who are either real people or sort of references to certain mm. things yeah and yeah look it's basically just sort of um it's just kind of a chance for me to have fun in all the playgrounds that inspired me I, yeah. I think it's actually Which how I think I it's like it. I think it's like a it's a it's it's kind of your way of and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's kind of, you're showing like ultimate respect for those things that got you to where you are and that's, as a that's writer. kind of what it is. And you I know? mean, look, Boone Shepherd to me, Boone Shepherd isn't, as a series and as a story, I don't want to say I don't find it artistically fulfilling because I really do. Mm. It's not, it's not material that really challenges me. Yeah. Like Boone Shepherd never really surprised me in the writing process. There were a couple of elements that mm. I was like, oh, that's kind of not how I saw it going, but it went differently. But in the writing process of the whole series, there was never a moment where I was like, oh my God, that's yeah. what's happening. Like the, the, the penny moments drops. Where it was like, moments where I was pulling my hair out being like, can I do this? Yeah. Because in terms of, look, for, for young adult literature and children's literature, it's actually, it's relatively dark and it's relatively, the stakes are high. I mean, people, characters die it, and they don't come back. It's pretty, like, it's pretty intense. And there are, um, there's guns yeah. and there's violence and there's werewolves and there's... But, but it doesn't feel... Like, it doesn't... Yeah, it doesn't feel violent. Yeah, no, but it, it, it actually is compared to a lot of other sort of yeah. young adult literature. Yeah. But, so, you know, to me it's not... It's not a story or a work of mine that I look at and I think, wow, that really took me to some, you know, dark places or some interesting places or really challenged me as a writer or an artist. It didn't. Yeah. I just really liked doing it. Yeah. And it was just something that I really, really enjoyed writing, something that's just really special to me because, again, you know, it's something that probably has a lot of passion and heart in it more so than anything else because it's just all the things I, lo- I like with 
two characters guiding you through it who are two characters I care about a tremendous amount mm. and mean a huge huge amount to me yeah so yeah no yeah I mean it it that that kind of thing you know it it really yeah it shows in the text um so without any spoilers for any future books do you have like a favorite reference or, or character that you brought in as in external character as in a reference to like a literary um, yeah is, do you have a okay, favorite there's a there's a great there's a bit I've just because I've been rewriting the second book mm. sort of in preparation to deliver the manuscript and there's I'm actually I am actually going to spoil it there's a bit oh, in the right. second well, book oh alright well that's fine alright I'll just sit here and cop it you're probably going to sit here and you can look at me and be like oh really man mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. and I I think it's great I'll give you I judgy eyes if that okay. happens yeah. there's, a, there's a bit in the second book which I, I love I think it's one of my favorite bits it's mm. basically where um, Boone is in 1960s New York Mm-hmm. And basically, Elvis Presley kidnaps him yep. to okay. kind of make him basically to kind of in, in, not in the like nefarious way as much as kidnapping cannot be nefarious, but kidnaps him basically to like get a- him to do something for him because Elvis and some other people are kind of in trouble. And Boone is really confused by Elvis because, as far as Boone's concerned, it's just this. But like, basically, what it's kind of implied is that Boone gets taken to this like big hall that's just covered in pictures of Elvis. Yeah. There's a big throne, and Elvis, is, and he's never named. He's just like, I'm the king. And like he's, he's the king, yeah. And basically, what Boone finds out is that like certain famous musicians, like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, etc., yeah. are being exploited by this evil. Oh, I don't want to go into all the details because it's quite complex. But yeah. basically, the implication is that all these musicians are sort of a society, and Elvis is that's their amazing. King. He's he's so like the secret king of he's the, the secret king. That's of amazing. Musicians everywhere. That's so, so Boone's good. kind of facing. Boone has no idea who he is. Yeah, and he's like, who's this guy in this? Like, who's this like? slightly pudgy graying sweaty man in yeah. this glittering suit and all of Elvis's dialogue and this is what I, I, I'm oh, laughing no. about it now oh, no. all of Elvis's dialogue no, 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 no. is just song titles nope no so, god there's a bit where he's like oh. now because Boone's quite suspicious he's like now you can't be having any suspicious minds or we're gonna end up caught in a trap and that'll keep us stuck in this halfway hotel so you better get on your blue suede shoes and go and face up to the devil in disguise mm. and it's just that's like, amazing as I was writing it I was laughing my head off because you were like I'm the best such a cheap gag it's a great and one it's though it's so dumb oh my god but the fun of it was that of course Boone has no idea what's going on and also like and Elvis doesn't even tweak it never occurs to Elvis that Boone might not know who he is oh okay Elvis just kind of is acting like Boone's really awestruck yeah so he's like so Elvis is like to Boone you know always great to have a fan helping me out and he's like I'm not a fan I don't know who you are like, what does, like, what's it, happening so for me that's a really funny that's scene that's amazing yeah. but no, that's, that's, that's probably there. my favourite that's or, gotta be up there yeah, yeah. They, they did a similar thing um, well not similar but they had they had a character who was Elvis in uh, one of the Fallout games the, the yeah. Wasteland games um, and yeah, he called himself the king, and he had, like, a gang... <laughs> he had, like, a violent gang of, like, slickers with, like, their hair. Awesome. Um, Actually, there's a bit, um... There's, a, there's another one I really like. In the fourth book, Boone meets Alfred Hitchcock, and he mm. has, like, this clandestine... Because the fourth book... Oh, God, is that way- just... That's just... Yeah, okay. I mean, for you, that would be... Amazing, because yeah, I know no, how much of a Hitchcock fan you are. I, so. I do love me some Hitchcock. But, like, in the same way the first one really is based around sort of gothic horror novels, the way the second one is really based around kind of classic rock. Yeah. The third one is really based around kind of suspense films. Yeah. And so the opening scene is Boone kind of meeting Hitchcock on the banks of the Thames, like, to get some information from him. Uh-huh. And it's this really ominous kind of... And I actually really loved writing it. It's like lots of, like, kind of really back-and-forth witty wordplay between them. Yeah. And they're kind of, like, doing all this stuff. And then basically... Hitchcock kind of like makes some really ominous pronouncement and disappears into the fog oh. and then an army of 
um, icy blondes because you don't know how much Hitchcock loved his icy blondes yep. so an army of like basically tippy hedrons with their like perfectly coiffed hair <laughs> with machine guns like come out and start shooting at Boone oh my and god so it's Boone like having this chase scene with all these like Hitchcock blondes that's coming amazing out, and it's just totally ludicrous yeah and, just like, the insane thing is, because obviously it's a kids book kids aren't going to get these references but to kids they're just colourful characters and fun things that are happening mm. and if you get the reference or like if your parents are reading it to you they'll be like oh that's you know that's what it is and oh. maybe it kind of works as a gateway maybe it'll introduce them I don't know but I mean, I'm hoping hope it'll so. just be fun even even if not that if, if you read it as a, as, a, as a young person and you come back to it years later with, with the wealth of being exactly. well, you go, like, you're like oh that's what that's it's like reading know. the Lemony Snicket books which I just I mean look his references are a lot more oblique than mine mine are very on the well, nose his books like, are a lot more just oblique is. as well yeah well, the Lemony, like in mine, it literally just is Oscar Wilde. It literally just is Elvis. In yep. the Lemony Snicket books, they're full of references to all kinds of things, mm. and they're just threaded like really beautifully and subtly throughout the text. And as a kid, you don't notice it. Yeah. As an adult, you really pick up on it. I mean, it's it's and the, you read through and you're like, oh, that's a George Orwell reference. Oh, that's a yeah. That's know. sort of because they're so laden there, you miss them as a kid. Yeah. And absolutely. I, you, you know, I, I think it's called the Simpsons effect. I can't remember, but yeah, it's it's that idea of like if you reference something um, for one audience so like you know it's like a, if you watch Toy Story as an adult yeah exactly it's full of dick Which jokes I did the other night yeah. yeah it's very funny as an adult yeah. you're, like, oh, yeah. you're like oh they're banging but those two toys are banging that's what are so good at because it means that the parents enjoy it as well yeah, that's well, that's, which I think is a really, really good way to approach entertainment, personally. Which, I mean, for the for Boone, like, it meant that when I read it, I wasn't like, oh, this is a book for children. I was like, oh, this is really fun, because I get awesome. all the references, you know. That's exactly kind of what I want. Um, which, you, I mean, as an adult, like, it's it, it just was, I was like, okay, I'll just take a break and read some Boone. Like, I just yeah. was like, I'll take a break. This is taking a break. That's what it's meant to be, and, it's, and that's why the pace is so frenetic. Mm. I didn't want there to be any filler. I want it to be the kind of thing you can knock over in two days, mm. or one day even. I want it to be the kind of thing where you pick it up, up and it doesn't let up yeah it just it from start to finish and the whole series is like that like the second mm. book literally picks up the first book ends on a cliffhanger the second book picks up from that cliffhanger and just barrels on plot wise and as the books go on particularly the second and the third have some real moments of like introspection and some really kind of deeper heartfelt moments in there mm. and so i hope i hope the balance kind of works but we'll sort of see how it goes i guess you know it, it tends to be a case of like I mean, look, just sort of thinking about your dialogue um, and the way that you kind of tend to structure the conversations, you know, I think I think it feels quite frenetic some of the time um, because, you know, there's not a ton of exposition. There's a lot of dialogue. Yeah, sure. But it means that, you know, because there's so much dialogue, what, what tends to happen is there are little moments where they really just, like, they, they sit they sit with you. Like, there's a few points in the book I can I could list off the top of my head where... I go, I remember, like, I really enjoyed that particular part of that conversation. Yeah, you cool, know, good. I mean, the, the biggest one for me is when they're, when Marbier and Boone are first on the, on the boat, um, and they have their first real conversation, um, and it's just really lovely, like, they just, it's, it's so lovely, and I sat there, and I was reading, I'm like, that was just really nice, like, and, you know, I think f- from a, just from, like, a craft perspective, it's a, like it's such it's just like I breathed a sigh of relief I was like that was so pleasant and it's also the first <laughs> moment of any like gentle positivity not only has Boone had in the 1800s but yeah. in the book in general because Boone and Prometheus so, are so barbed with each yeah. other him and Huxley um, are barbed him and Oscar Wilde are barbed yeah everybody every other character is a villain who's trying to kill them mm. but that moment between him and Marvia is the first mm. time he actually gets there's any connection really if there's any connection where yeah. somebody actually looks beyond him and actually says I think you have value yeah as the first time he gets told that and that's why and I love that beautiful illustration Joe Lombard did at the head of the chapter of the two of them looking out over the sunset yeah, like I just I, love it's, that it's gorgeous picture. it's such a it's just that's such a moment like that's one of those things where people are like oh well what was your favourite part of the book if that was a question I'd be like that yeah because 
I mean, it, you know, that it wouldn't be if the rest of the book was like that. But because it's because it's this fast-paced, frenetic, like Indiana Jones, Tintin, like adventure. Yeah, those moments just like it makes them shine more. It makes everything else shine more through like, contrast. Absolutely, and that was yeah. I mean, that was definitely my favorite part. Um, but so stuff like that, you know, you have a very sort of. Some people really struggle with dialogue, um, and I don't know if that's just like a thing because a lot of people aren't really taught dialogue very well, just mm. you know, in, in in writing class and stuff. But um, you seem to have very clean dialogue, and I know that that's largely editing, and you've worked at it a lot. But when you come into writing a conversation for dialogue, how do you sort of like how do you structure how that flows? Do you just kind of get into the characters' voices and just go? Um, I, no, not really. Predominantly because I just really enjoy writing dialogue. Yeah, like because I'm a playwright. And, yeah, you know, yeah. the fact is, I'm first and foremost a playwright, and so I just really like writing banter, and I really like just writing characters bouncing back and forth dialogue to each other. So, I mean, there are some of the Boone Shepherd books, particularly reading over the later books, where there are moments where I'm like, oh, there's so much conversation that's going to have to go, because there's, particularly at the, obviously, um, as we're assuming, if you're listening to this, you've read the book or you don't care. Well, we've, we've um, got through a lot of spoilers. So we have, so, so it's too late now. So, obviously, yeah. the book ends with Boone and Prometheus stuck in the 1800s. The second book picks up with the two of them in America living with Oscar Wilde, and it's basically, I think it's referred to by... Because Oscar Wilde was in America at that time, yeah, historically. Yeah. And so they're living in this tiny little apartment that's too small for one person with Oscar Wilde. Yeah. And it's just horrible. I think there's a line where Promethea calls it like the worst house share ever. <laughs> because basically, you know, you've got Boone who's kind of still brooding about what's just happened. Yeah. You've got Promethea who just doesn't give it, does not care about anything. She's like, she's yeah. set up a hammock. She's in there. She's reading Oscar's like drafts of plays and tearing them to shreds and like telling him he's talentless and abusing him and making him cook them breakfast every yeah. morning. Oscar's slowly losing it because these like uncultured bores are in his house. We've all had and, house shares like that. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then of course mm. what happens is that adventure comes calling and they all get sort of pulled out in this new adventure. Yeah. But by circumstance, Oscar gets stuck with them. Yeah. So there's a lot of scenes of the three of them in a carriage kind of escaping from bad guys across the American countryside in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah. And there's so much just banter between Boone and Oscar and Promethea particularly yeah. between Oscar and Promethea and the fun of it was putting two characters like that like Oscar Wilde who's very cultured and very sophisticated and very intelligent yeah. and Promethea Peters who is just a loudmouth bore and a really really immature person to boot she's just kind of this bull in a china shop exactly of a human exactly. You and know? her and Oscar Wilde in a carriage that's amazing just ripping into each other and there's so much superfluous dialogue that's going to have to go but it was just so much fun to write well that's I mean that's what because to be honest, that's what Oscar Wilde did really well as well. Yeah, which absolutely. is like awesome that that came through because that's like that was his style. Like you know, he, yeah, you have these like. There's one moment I was just reading over this yesterday, which is why it's so fresh in my head. There's one mm. moment, you know, they're in the carriage and they're bickering, and Boone's just trying to admire the view, and Oscar yeah. and uh, Prometheus are just like bickering back and forth, back and forth, yeah. back and forth. And Oscar's like, you know, I wish I wasn't traveling with such an uncultured philistine. And Prometheus like, you're lucky I don't know what that word means, Wilde, or else I'd be <laughs> punching you. That's and amazing. I think Oscar says something like, the outcome of of a situation cannot be deemed lucky if it is certain. Oh, and then Prometheus like sitting there and she kind of like sits there for a moment and she's Boone, like working it and, out yeah and Boone's kind of got this moment where his internal monologue is like I enjoyed a moment of blessed silence while Prometheus tried to work out if Oscar was insulting her or not that's he a, was and then like that's of course then something cuts him off and Prometheus yeah. never gets a chance to figure out if but it's stuff like that so that's really really fun that's, that's like um, they do that a lot in the office um, the original one not the American one where like someone will be like oh I'm, I'll go and I'll do this task and the narrator will go he didn't it's yeah, that kind of yeah. like it's just so satisfying or like, um, when it, when it Arrested works. Development did it too yeah oh, that, that perfect example oh yeah where yeah, it's like yeah, yeah um, mom, you know mom said that she always really loved um, pies 
She did. She did. She she lied. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, she's like, yeah. She said she was gonna, she was going to go lie down. She lied. Like well, those are the best the, moments. Um, that bit moment, that was that great moment where she's like, I love all my children equally, and it cuts her with a glass of wine. It's being like, I don't care for Job. It's <laughs> I just yeah, love so, so much. Stuff like that is so like it's just fun. Yeah, I, feel I like, really like it. You know, there's there's this sort of there's a because I've studied a lot of Oscar Wilde because I really admire yeah, the way he sure. does what he does. Um, and there's the conversation that. Um, in uh, earnest, in points of being earnest, um, at the start with Algernon and the cucumber sandwiches. Yep, yep. And that was the first thing of his I ever read, and I just was in. I remember reading the minute that happened. Ernest. In year eleven, incidentally, oh, funnily enough, it might have influenced this. It did. Um, but I remember <laughs> studying it in year eleven mm. and just being so taken aback by it because I picked it up and I started reading it. and I had to study it for school. Yeah. And I was like, this is really funny it's hilarious so this is like and it's still it's and laugh out loud humor funny dates humor really dates yeah but that doesn't rock solid it's so funny and it's, it's so clever yeah and it's just every time i read it i'm just you know mm. in hysterics it, all the way through there, there's a few moments and i think this is true of um i think will anderson said it he's like really good like really good comedy you you like comedy that is so good it's genius you don't always laugh at you kind of go Oh my god! I wish I thought of that. Yeah, and there, yes, there's so true. you know most of that book, uh, most of that script is you laugh, you're laughing out loud. And there are a few moments where you go, "Holy, f- like, oh my god, that is like that is so genius." Yeah, you absolutely. Know? absolutely. That, I, I, I adore that that script. I think it's amazing. Oh, it's brilliant. It's abs- <laughs> it's just fantastic. It's it's hilarious, and it's it's got this kind of meaning behind it that's great. And, and that's so why, many great characters. I think that's why the picture of Dorian Gray is so good as well because I mean. I love Dorian Gray because A, it's a cracking yarn. Mm. B, it's got so much subtext. Yeah. And C, it's actually really funny. Oh, it's very... Like people don't yeah. give it credit enough because it was written by Oscar Wilde, so particularly Lord Henry Wotton's lines, a mm. lot of his dialogue is just laugh out loud hilarious. But I think, you know, pe- people get sold short on Dorian Gray because I think when you explain the concept to people, I think it's going to be this dreary, drab, gothic thing. Nah, Dorian, Dorian Gray is pretty... You know, it just... It, it really... I mean, it's not a big book and it really just kind of starts... And then it jumps twenty years, then it ends. Yeah, it's like, very, it really, it's very it, Oscar. Like, yeah, it just kind of includes <laughs> the highlights, and that's it. Um, and it's very funny. And like, it's a highlight reel. I never thought of it like yeah, that. Yeah, and, it's, yeah. and I love it. I love the picture of Dorian mm. Gray, and the fact that like he, I mean, like, just as a funny aside, the fact that there's just so much gay subtext in that book, a lot, yeah. and the fact that he got away with it until obviously they use it in his trial, well, and then they were like, it's prison. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the same way you can see importance being earnest how he's showing this play to high society people. And the whole play is just kind of completely laughing at and they, them. And they loved it. And then he's sitting there like, this is amazing. And it's the same thing with Dorian Gray. Like, yeah. you read it, and it's nowadays, exactly, yeah. with a modern sensibility, you're like, okay, this is, this is, there's a lot going on here. It's very barbed but, and like... Oh, yeah. yeah. But, he was not a happy camper with, with British society no, in general. No, he wasn't. Yeah, no, it's great. Like, I, and I think, you know, when, when, I, was, when I was sitting down to write these notes um, for, for the interview, I was kind of like, I don't, like, I don't really know where to start. But I think... One of the things that I kind of wanted... I don't know if this was intentional that you put in there or not, but one of the things I really got from the book was this sense of, like... And I think this is, you know, largely true of a lot of young adult fiction. There tends to be, you know, writing, we call it a controlling theme, but for anyone who's unindoctrinated, it's like the sort of the takeaway or the lesson or the, the sure. kind of the, 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 the overall thematic thing that's there. Um, you know, when I finished Boom Shepherd, I wasn't, like... Oh, okay. That was the obvious meaning. I was just like, okay, I want to read more. And also, 
I kind of was like, I kind of, I, you know, I want to read more, but I also just don't want to leave yet. Like, I'm not ready cool. to go. That's good. Um, that's a really good feeling. And that was what I took away. And I was like, that, that's awesome. That, that, a, that, that a book that is fun, like it's relaxing, it's enjoyable. So let's just start with, so I want to talk about Boone, but as, um, so he reminds me of a mix of like Tintin, Indiana Jones. Um, there's like a bit of, and this is not a, this is a compliment, a bit of like Anakin from, um, yeah, Star Wars, where like I, I was thinking particularly that scene where Obi Wan they're in the speeder um, and they're pursuing the bounty hunter and Anakin just hoofs out of the the speeder yeah, sure, and just and, sure. and Obi Wan's like God he's done that again you know like he's that that kind of thing not yeah you know yeah like just that sort of genius but thoughtless action that puts well, him in danger there's, yeah there's a whole thing with him where he like he because like Boone Shepard in my mind he's not a particularly intelligent character he doesn't think ahead he doesn't plan ahead he's not a strategist mm. he just He's a doer. He's a doer. <laughs> and there's there's one moment like in the second book which I love because to me the moment is the moment that defines him as a character. Yeah. Where basically he has more or less defeated the villain of the second book. Yeah. And the villain kind of rides off on horseback into the desert mm-hmm. and Boone chases her on horseback. Yeah. And he's kind of chasing after him. He's got no plan. He's got no idea of what he's going to do. He's got no nothing. And the whole kind of, I guess the central theme of the second book is, I mean, obviously in the first book, his whole dark past and everything gets resolved. Mm. But coming to the second book, and there's sort of a question hanging over the whole second book, which is, okay, so I've lived for so long being bound by this secret I've got yeah. and this trauma, and now it's done. I mean, I guess, you what know, Marvy's Avengers, what, what now? Who am I after yeah. this? Like, and his whole question in the second book is, who am I? Yeah. And there's this moment where he he rides after this villain and he's kind of, and she kind of turns around, she pulls a gun on him. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's framed by the expanse of the desert. It's sunset. It's yeah. very, very cinematic, very Western. And she's kind of got a gun aimed at him. She's like, turn away and go back or I will kill you. Yep. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. And she goes, what, what's your plan? What are you going to do? What are you going to, what rabbit are you going to pull, 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 uh, pull out of the hat to, mm. to stop me? And he goes, nothing. He goes, I've got nothing. He goes, all I'm going to do is keep chasing you and that's the moment where he's like because that's the person I am yeah okay. like, I will do whatever I can to stop the bad guy and yeah it's the moment where he's just like mm. he honestly says to her I've got nothing yep. he goes if you turn around right away I will keep coming after you mm. if you shoot me then I guess I'm going to die but at least I'll know I died doing the right thing so you have to shoot me so you have to shoot me <laughs> yeah and she shoots him through the hand and for the rest of the series he's got a hole in his hand oh nice which just kind of keeps becoming a running joke mm. yeah so yeah. that's kind of cool there's a there's some stuff like that um, one of my favorite running I, it's not necessarily a joke but in Jim Butcher's Dresden Files, which is like a fourteen series, like it's sure. fourteen books, uh, one of the main the main character gets his hand burned in like by magical fire in the second book. Yeah, yeah. And so the rest of the series it like slowly heals over like thirteen books, and it's that's just kind of nice little touchstone. So I always love stuff like that where it's just like a little little touch. Yeah, you know? no, it's it's good fun, and I mean he he does get more and more battered and sort of destroyed as the series goes on in different ways, which is. Always fun, put your character through the ringer. Yeah. Um, so, out of interest, what did you think of Marbia and Promethea as characters? So, Promethea, I... So, Promethea... <laughs> this is not a good thing to admit. Promethea, I was like, that reminds me of Gabe a lot in person. <laughs> yeah, right. Just our interactions. But also, um, I was like, I can really identify with Promethea. She's such a dick, and I'm such a dick as well. Yeah. So, I really enjoyed it. She was bit, so fun. I, I love her. Promethea Peters is... She's fucking hilarious. My favorite well. character I've ever read. So written. funny. Like, I just, I love her so much. Yeah. She's the character who just comes in and she writes herself. She comes in and she writes, she pretty much, and what I, and I'm actually, what, I had a really, somebody read the book uh, before it went into publication and made a point that kind of made me sit back and I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of, that's right, but there's more to it. And that point was that she basically said, she was like, do you think you Gwen Stacy'd Marbia? 
Do you think like you what, killed what do you off mean? the female? You killed off the girlfriends to motivate the main character. Oh, oh, which is you know something that happens to female characters a lot. Yeah, and I was like, oh, shit, did I? You were I was like, like did shit, I? did I? But I mean. <laughs> And I did think about it, and I suppose like it's it's tricky because I don't think I personally think that you know a book should stand by itself, even though obviously it's part of a series. There's more coming. I don't want to sort of rely on me explaining myself in interviews or like what's going to happen in later books to justify what may very well be a decent flaw in the first book. I mean, mm. Marvia had to die to galvanize the plot, but and also I'm still up- the same if Boone was a female character yeah. and Marvia was a man. And I'm still upset with you for doing it, but yes. But there's more to it. That's, uh, that's see, I'm still I'm still is, upset with you though. Yeah. I'm, it's I'm it's um, Look, I won't yeah, forgive you, but um, I'll, I'll take yeah, your word for it's, it. It was actually that was a really tough scene to write. But there, you think there is, there's tough a lot to more. read? Jesus, good. That's good. I yeah. want to hear that. I mean, you know, it's, it's talking about the Gwen Stacy thing in the comics when it happens. It's it's like it's it's heartbreaking. That yeah. that in the comic book, it's just agonizing. Problem is, in the film, it was surrounded by other not-so-good stuff. Explosive just, CGI and ugh, colors. And too color. many villains and a whole bunch of weird I didn't even watch that film. I it was the first one. I was like, that's we, enough Spider-Man. We saw it at a pre-screening um, for free. And we walked out and I went, thank God we didn't pay for it. Yeah, no, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess, like, it was... Because, like, it's funny with characters like Marvia and Promethea, both of whom, I guess... So, and somebody else made the point that saying they were too similar, and I was like, no, they're not. Marvia's like enigmatic and reserved and kind of quite serious, and Prometheus goofy and loud mouthed and a bit of a dickhead. She never knows when to shut up. She never knows when to shut up. Yeah. And on top of that, I mean, like, I like, because, I mean, have you ever read that article, I Hate Strong Female Characters? No. It's great. It's written by this really intelligent female writer who basically breaks down mm. the strong female character archetype, which is like, you know, the. You know, the butt-kicking princess who knows kung fu and is an ace shot and always has a yeah. witty comeback for everything and always punches the guys in the face. And it's like, you know, and it, it's she, basically the argument was that that's male writers overcorrecting. That's mm-hmm. male writers being like, we want to prove our feminist credentials by creating strong female characters. You go a like, little too but far. But you would never call you never call a good male character a strong. You, you wouldn't really call Batman a strong male character. I mean, I guess he is, but mm. like he's he's more than that. He's tortured. He's well, he's a he's a often exactly yeah, he's a, he's there's, a, there's more you can say than strong yes. and with Promethea it was like yeah Promethea is capable she's an A shot she's probably but I what I like about Promethea is the fact that she's a very she is a strong female character in that she's emotion. she's sort of personality strong personality wise but I would say she's capable she's strong but she's also character wise horribly flawed yeah, like yeah. she's arrogant she's loud mouth she's probably more capable than Boone but not by much like not really, and there are, well, there are I other. Mean, I mean, it balances itself out. You know, the, the idea of strong female characters. The problem with that is that people are strong, sure, but they're also weak. Exactly. So you have to have and both sides. They've got to have vulnerabilities. Know. And Promethea and Marvia, I think, both have. So I mean, look, I don't know. I, I sort of think that. I mean, if anybody accusing sort of the Marvia thing of being Gwen Stacy, I was like, well, I mean, it's not like it's not like I've killed off the only dynamic female character in the story because yeah. you've got Promethea as well mm. who personally if I was to toss a coin between Marvia and Promethea as a character I want to spend time with it'd be Promethea yeah but I, she's I, so I love fun. Marvia too but Promethea yeah. is a lot of fun to write and also like Promethea Promethea I'm, I'm sorry to people because there will be people who hate her she's not going anywhere she's yep. nope, she's staying the fine. course she's going all the way through she's got a lot of development and a lot of yep. learning to do yep. and her and Boone sort of learn together and I think the arc of the story is the two of them learning from each other and getting better because of each other which is what people and do you know which is what people do and they sort of grow together as friends and partners and it's yeah it's um so no i mean like i was yeah see the gwen stacy thing is it's tricky because i'm sitting here and i'm thinking yeah did i do that did I? Did I say what it's well it's it's tough because it's like yeah but it kind of had to happen that doesn't mean that it's good that it yeah. did happen it, i mean obviously it's a trend but like yeah 
I get you know I guess it's a case of like there there were sure there were other ways you could have done it but none that would have felt like yeah exactly like it it feels like it works in yeah the t- and you know the the fact that you brought that up and that hadn't even occurred to me because I'm still upset about the fact that she's dead yeah cool, cool. um I'm still not cool with it and I don't know if I'm ever gonna speak to you again but like no fair enough yeah look, that's it friendship over it's um, done. Uh, um but yeah it didn't occur to me so I you know oh, cool. pe- people that say that I think that's a it's a it's a thing that people say now a lot, and people are just gonna keep saying it until yeah, yeah. you know what I mean. It's um, it's maybe one of those things. Yeah, oh, well, look, it is what it is. I mean, like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I guess, like, for people who do feel that way, provide assuming you didn't hate the book enough to not read the next ones, there is more to Marvia's story. There's mm. more to come. It's a four book series, and I think one of the funniest things that originally not funny but like just strange is that it, talking about as we mentioned before, kind of stories organically mm. going the way they want to go. Yeah, they grow. Um. <laughs> You know, the Boone Shepherd series was originally meant to be very episodic. Like, everyone was meant to be sort of a different adventure, sort of yeah. completely standalone thing. As the series went on, it actually turned out to be very serialized. Like, every yeah. book kind of continues from where the previous one ended. And things from the first book, like Babel, yeah. um, Darius, elements like those yeah. characters and, uh, and plot points are still going concerns by the end of the series. Oh, like they don't okay. they don't really go away. Every story is different. Every adventure is different. It's not like it's one adventure broken up. Yeah, yeah. Every book has a climax resolution, a story it's telling that wraps there's, up. There's sort of the But yeah, there are threads. Yeah. The Babel thread, I mean, for a start, you know, there are certain leftover questions. Like, I mean the second book the second book will answer the question of, you know, who was the mysterious woman in Draculius' basement? Mm. Because there was a voice of a woman in there and she yes. blew up the lab. Who was her? That, there's an answer to that question. Oh, okay. Um, secondly, like, where was Darius getting his money from? That's probably a question nobody thought to ask, but that question is answered. See, I, often those um, are the most interesting ones because you're like, shit, you're like, why? Hang on, why, why, why didn't I ask? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of questions I don't think people would ask that will get answered in the second book, like that. And also, because, um, you know, in the first part where Huxley talks about Couchman Frame, the journalist having this mysterious piece of knowledge and having like going on this trek into Scotland yeah. and disappearing who told him about that uh, that's another question that also oh, what? does get answered what yeah, yeah okay. all of that all right is so I okay mean, i don't know <laughs> if it's maybe i don't know if it's too much sort of clinging to past events but i think it i think it really effectively sort of i i think anyway at this point he says mm. with nobody else having read it but i, I think it <laughs> it does enrich i think the first book well, it makes the world look the four books are very much one story together yeah and I think it's tricky because I mean yeah again come back to Wednesday's thing like stuff like that it's tricky when it's a work in progress yeah and I mean I think the fact is you know it's part of a series I I think it should tell a complete satisfying enjoyable story in and of itself yeah but yeah there's a lot of things particularly from the first book that do pay off down the line there are setups Mm. you've already met the main villain of the whole series in oh, this book God. and it's not who you think it is oh, no. you've met the person oh, who no. will be the final oh, showdown no. the final see, book and it's not who you think it is see that to me is I, I always love that stuff there's yeah. you know um, one of the best uh, so one of the best young adult fiction series I've, I've been doing some research um, lately um, and a friend of mine recommended Skullduggery Pleasant which is a sort oh, of I read the first two I really yeah, enjoyed them really fun um, and they've, they've gone on and I think I think they've finished I'm not sure there's but, like um, 10 of them now or something yeah there's a lot but it turns out that the main character ends up becoming the villain of the series oh right and it's genius like it's this genius moment because um, they know it's coming for a few books like she's going to bring the apocalypse or whatever they, they, they learn that um, and the rest of the books is them trying to prevent it and then ultimately causing it. And it's this really yeah, interesting sure. sort of... But each book has, you know, a villain of the week, if you want to call it that. Um, they have to go and solve. But each time it brings them closer to this thing that you know is coming. 
So I really like. I think that's that serialization well, works so well. There's a different villain. I mean, the first Moon Shepherd book has two villains, so two for the price of one. That's but, true. Um, every the third, fourth, and sorry, uh, second, third, and fourth, they all have they all have their own villain. Yeah. But each of those villains, they all tie together. Mm. Like the villain in the third book, for example, is a character who has had nothing to do with. I'm going to try to say this in the most roundabout, non-spoilery way possible. Yeah. But he's a character who's had nothing to do with the events we've already seen mm. until he does because sure. time travel. Oh yeah. So, no, fair enough. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there's there's that, and so it all does. So I, I want it to be the kind of series where when you put down the you know hopefully fingers crossed we get to the fourth book. I want it to be the kind of thing where you get to the point where you put down the fourth book, and if you were to go back and reread the whole series from it start just to finish, works there are moments I can point to where if you you know fingers crossed if people like the books there are moments where if you read the first book again I can point to I think probably three or four different moments in the first book yeah. where you will read it and you'll go oh, oh yeah and that that stuff is it was the beauty amazing. of knowing the whole overall arc mm. of the story when I went into it was being able to plant seeds and and I and this is me tooting my own horn here but some of them are so subtle there is no way you will pick up of there, there are certain things in there that you were, there is no way in hell you will pick up on that being of any significance until it is. until you've read the final book, which is great. Like that that stuff is that's what makes a lot of series so enjoyable is because it rewards you for for reading. Yeah, well, that's you what know? I'm hoping it does because that's, and that's what you want. Like when you finish a book, you want to feel like it was worthwhile. Yeah, and, and I I think I look I. I hope I think this series will in the end. <laughs> You're um, like fingers crossed. I think I hope. I don't know. It's it does a lot of like it sort of like flies in the face of a lot of the rules of young adult fiction in some ways, particularly as it goes on. But I well, some of the most successful, I think you know one of the the, the things that I think really applies to Boone Shepherd as an idea is like once you know the rules that's when you're allowed to know which ones to break yes exactly um, exactly because I mean that's why some some books are so amazing like if you look at you know. I always talk about the name of the wind, so Patrick Rothfuss. Yeah, yeah. Um, who is, I think, he might be my all-time favorite writer ever. Um, his book does not structurally work. It shouldn't work. It should. It just shouldn't. There's no way it would, but it's perfect. Because he knows exactly which structural rules to break, and Boone Shepard does that, you know. You would say to yourself, oh, well, you can't actually have a flashback in the middle of your book. Yeah. But then you do, and it works because you know why you're breaking it, and the reason makes sense in the context of And that's why, of like, book. I think... I think, you know, one thing I learned from film school, because particularly going in at the start, I was like, oh, no, you know, I don't want to do don't, I don't do what you tell me. I want to break all the rules. I don't care. I'm but a, I'm a rebel. Was, if you're going to break the rules, <laughs> yeah. rules are in place for a reason, generally speaking, because it's a tried and true formula. And that that sounds like a bit safe. Yeah. And of course, if you like the rebel screenwriter in me wants to be like, oh, no, I break all the rules. But the thing is, the smarter thing is to look at it like, why are you going to break the rules? Mm, like, you've got to have a real why reason. Why are you breaking them? And with Boone Shepard, with the extended flashback in the middle of the first book, which is so not kosher yeah that is so not what you're meant to do yeah and my screenwriting tutors would probably kick me up and down if they if they read that but the fact of it is i actually i know why i did it yes and i can justify it and i also know how i approached it to try to get around that being a problem yeah because you know what the problem it works i i i I think it did as well um we'll see we'll see you know, if, if if it turns out everyone hates it, then... Then, well, hey, I mean, look, whatever. That, I mean, that's a lesson in itself. Not much though. I can do. Again, as Sometimes, we start, it's yeah. gone out in the world. It belongs to other people yeah. now. And once it's, once and it's, it's yours, also... you can hate it and keep it around all you like. Use it for toilet paper if you want to. Yeah. I mean, I guess you've paid the money for it and I can't afford to reimburse you 20 bucks. Yeah. So... I mean, what what ply is your book? How many... I um, I, I don't know. I should, I should know. You should find out, yeah. Um, that's <laughs> should be aware of. That, that should be on the back, actually, on the, on yeah, the dust yeah, jacket, just, you know. And maybe they have like a convenient hole in the top corner, like sticking the hook in the Oh, so you can put, yeah, like a 
to, but then you yeah, need to, yeah, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Man, it could make life more yeah. easy. But um, one of the things that, so to, to put it in perspective, that um, that idea of a flashback being in the middle of a book, um, in Stephen King's Dark Tower series, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I know, I've been meaning to read it for ages, but oh, again, God. I'm mired in the wheel of time right now. Oh, and that yeah, is Wait, my, that's, I'll see yeah. you in five years. Um, yeah. there's, an, uh, there's an entire book of that. It's the longest book of the eight, eight book series I think it's eight books it might be seven I'm not sure there's an entire book the fourth one is almost a, it, the whole thing is a flashback pretty much right. and it's the longest book like it's this thick I've just gestured but it's a, it's amazingly long but it's all flashback and that shouldn't you should never do that like no, ever. You shouldn't do that. but it works so well because he knows why he's doing it and it just it's a like it's, it's one of the better books of the but series see, that's the thing I mean like taking risks like that is I mean look at what Game of Thrones did mm. uh, the Song of Ice and Fire series in yep. the fourth and fifth book mm. where instead of dividing the narrative chronologically they divided ge- uh, geographically geographically, geographically yeah. Yeah. yeah so pretty much it was like you know you in the fourth book you got what was going on with certain characters in a certain parts of yeah. the world and then the fifth book you got what was going on with other characters yes in theory it's interesting but I don't think you can justify it like mm. it's one of those things where it's like well yeah it's an interesting take but, but again why? you're not you're, what do you bring, you're sort of ignoring the fact that these are really thick books and basically you're asking people to wait a whole book until they can see their favorite kind characters of, again. Kind point of, A and point B. If you read the books as they came out, there's a five year wait between books. I mean, you imagine that you read the third book. Yeah, it took you ten years to find out what happened to Tyrion or Jon Snow or Daenerys. Yeah, you don't see them in the fourth book, which is like I, I think you know there's a time and a place to take risks like that, but you like they, it has to work. Yeah, you know? absolutely. You have to be 110 percent sure and. You know, I saw a really good comedy show recently. It was um, Neil Kolhatka. He's an internet comedian, does that Australian, Australian in Two Minutes video. Mm. Um, look, I mean, I'm not a huge, huge fan of his um, YouTube stuff. I mean, I, I liked it enough to go and see his comedy show, obviously. Yeah. But, um, but I went and saw his comedy show, and basically what I loved about it was that it was really fleet and really fast. Yes. So, look, some, some moments weren't as funny as others. Mm. They were, other audience members really liked him, but there were moments I was like, oh, yeah, whatever, get on with it. But what I liked about it was the fact that basically it was like, if you don't like this, in two minutes there'll be another thing. And I kind of tried to have that with Boone Shepherd, where it's like, if you get into the flashbacks, I've seen them being like, oh, I don't, I don't really want the flashbacks. It's like, yeah. give it, you know, give it 50 pages yeah. and you'll be out of there. Yeah, but yeah. 50 right. pages and you'll be back to the other stuff. It does feel so, like that there's something for everyone, you know? Yeah, which, I mean, and that's the tricky thing, like, with, when it came to selling this was, you know, because we've obviously sold it as young adult, but it kind of breaks one of sort of the fundamental rules of young adult fiction, which is that the main character is an adult, like yeah, the, but I mean, like in my mind, it's that Indiana Jones, Doctor Who thing, where Star Wars, even where the stories are made for kids and appeal to kids, and yeah. the characters are not children. But you know, that's kind of why I want to keep his age indeterminate. Like with, I mean, yeah. his yeah. age—you can actually find out his age now because the dates are in there. He's twenty. Yeah, but but it it feels like it. You know, he feels young. Yeah, and um, yeah, and that's kind of which what, is kind of the point. You but know? you know, I think it's. And yeah, it's tricky because like in my mind, I, I want to be one of those things that can be enjoyed by any age. I want to be one of those things where it's like, and like you said at the start with the Easter eggs and everything, yeah. it's something that a kid can read and like, something like for the fun adventure mm. and the colorful characters, something an adult can read and like for the little in-jokes and the references yeah. and the cameos of and famous people and stuff like that. Yeah. And the problem is, like, I mean, you pitch that to a publishing house and you say, they're like, who's it for? It's like, it's for everyone. And the first thing you get taught at film school, because so many writers, myself mm. included, try to say, oh, my film's for everyone. And they're like, if it's for everyone, it's for no one. Yep. Or when they ask about your theme, what's your theme? Oh, it's about everything. It's about well, everything. It's about nothing. Yeah, that, like, that no means... And like, to me, it's like, yeah, it's for that age. It's the kind of... I basically wrote the kind of book I would have loved when I was 13. Yeah. Is 
sort of what I'm. It it does. No, that, that's I, I get what you mean. Like it's it's the kind of thing that at the same age I would have been like, this is this is sick. You know, because that's the kind of thing I was reading. You know, that was yeah, the, and that's, the Skullduggery Pleasance and, of the know, time, you know. And I wanted it to be... I don't want to keep, like, a bit of darkness to it, too. Even though, like, the general tone is kind of light and frothy. Like, I mean, the main plot is actually kind of based on the Book of Exodus. Yeah. Prince of Egypt, really, is my... I've never read the Book of Exodus. But, like, you know, the whole thing of, It's like, one of the better parts of the Bible. Oh, yeah, well... The Prince of Egypt is one of the better films that's come from the Bible, if not the best. I don't know. I, um, I don't know. Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's a good time. Yeah. Great, great songs. Jesus Christ Superstar, I do love. That's all right. But, um, Passion of the Christ, 10 out of 10. Yeah, well, I mean, think about Prince of Egypt. I think I got, I actually got the idea for this, the bulk of this story, listening mm. to the plague song from the Prince of Egypt, where mm. Moses and Ramses, like, singing across yes. the once I called you brother. Like, you know, and it's basically, that was where the Boon and Darius oh, dynamic came from. Okay. Like, yeah. two brothers who kind of get forced back into conflict yeah. with each other and then one basically is trying to release these people the other one has prisoner mm. and basically it's the plot of Prince of Egypt mm. just with a time travelling journalist and his little I'm, brother who's 40 years older than him I'm fairly sure that though I'm no copyright expert I'm fairly sure the statute of copyright has run out on the bible I, I think so I like, think I'm probably safe just, yeah I, it's a bit old it's a bit outdated <laughs> God comes in slaps down some papers you've been served yeah, he's like, out. look, he's like, I don't know how to say this, but um, where are my royalties? <laughs> yeah, just, you, yeah, that's, I mean, look, that's a, it's a risk you're gonna run. Moses comes hobbling into the studio right now, and he's like, right now, like, <laughs> sounds some, like, just had two stone slabs. Yeah, he's like, look, I'd used to, I do stone. It's olden days. Can, where's my money? Yeah, pretty much. You, you hand him a twenty dollar note. It's like, I don't know what this. What, <laughs> this is what the, can, This is from a book that. Someone... Where can I exchange this for a goat? <laughs> yeah, I imagine that's much. how you bought books back in the day. Oh, almost. I'm definitely. no historian. Or stone slab. I mean, I still do. I, this was weird. I took a goat to the book launch last night, and they and just, they didn't accept it. It was weird. Why like, would they do that? I don't know. Especially for Boone Shepherd. Like, Come it just on, man. Felt, it felt like a fair exchange. Jeez, I don't know what the I was. Theme, it makes sense. Hey, if you look, if you gave me a goat for the book, I'd give you a book. Well, because you gave me a well, yeah, but you I also gave me a book. You, you want a goat, want and a goat. I want a book. Like, yeah, exactly. Goods and services. That's how it works. Exactly. Supply and demand. I think. Actually, something in the book that reminded me of a goat. I don't know why I brought this up. Good. Um, so okay, so goats made me think of animals, which made me think of um, manatees, which <laughs> is the best. Um, it's the best and weirdest, and so it's subtle, but it's fucking weird. Manatees thing, like it doesn't go away. When either. when I read that, I just chuckled. I was like, "What is happening, Gabe?" I've what actually, is I've actually got a. Okay, there is actually a reason for the manatee oh, thing, okay. but you'll never find out what it is. Oh, it's okay. not in any of the books. Is there it, is, in my uh, mind, there is a reason, and there's more and more references in the books as it goes on. Is it the, the hint as to what the manatee mm, thing is? Mm-hmm. I know canonically mm-hmm. why manatees are such a fixture in this universe mm-hmm. and why they keep coming up. Mm. But you won't ever see. I don't think you'll ever see yeah. that story. Okay. But I know why. There is a reason. It's in the. Um, it's in the brain. Are we gonna? In, are we gonna hear it? Or you hang I'm, on I'm, to it. I'm toying with. It. I'm not sure. Okay. To tell well, you or not. Well, here's the thing. Because I'm not. Because like, I'm just worried if people listen to this now and they're like, and then they're like, when they read the second or third book, you know, if they, you know, hopefully they happen. Like, um, I'm just worried that they will read that and be like, oh yeah, come on. No, you're right. Like, you know what? what the manatee thing is. You know what? Tell me, and then I'll cut it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So I'll cut that out. But that's amazing. <laughs> um, I anyway, there that's, you go. There we go. That's the the, the Arthros exclusive. Yeah. I can walk around with that. That one. That's so good. Um, you now you know. You now you know why the manatee thing. Yeah, we got we got the inside track. Um, I might fantastic. reveal it one day, but uh, but one day, one day they'll now. you'll uh they'll be like a um maybe you know maybe maybe in years down the track you know yeah it comes yeah. out um you write a p- <laughs> the manatee the manatee incident <laughs> the manatee incident yeah, that's look, how maybe, you should yeah maybe like maybe I'll write it code name manatee and have incident. it on my deathbed 
and like oh. have it released after I die. Oh, you do like yeah, it's your um, it's your manuscript that comes out when because you're dead. I'm pretty sure like if like if these if they take off well enough and stuff, and people read them, people are like, what the hell is the manatee thing? Yeah. And when you're because when you're the king of writers, which is presumably what you're going for. Oh no, absolutely. Um, yeah, 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 you're going for the throne. It's yeah, it's right. like the rap game. Like every, every you know, yeah. Drake's on the throne at the moment, but you you know you're coming. Same as like the Elvis element. From it's earlier, the same but, thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, same um, deal. just except for writers. So it's yes. Yeah, it's quite. It's in a darkened room. It's a nice writing desk, but there's a throne. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a bottle of scotch. Yeah, so when you're the king of writers, maybe when you die, like that's the like in your will, you're like you have to publish this book. Can <laughs> you do that? Is that a thing you can do? I think oh, it is. Because yeah, David Bowie dropped my record when I die. I feel like you can. Yeah. I don't know if it's legally binding though. I don't think you can be like publisher. When I die, you must <laughs> you write that into every contract for any book you ever write from yeah, now on. You must publish. This you got to publish it when I'm dead. Thing. Yeah. Oh well. Anyway, look. You know, maybe, maybe not. I'll see. I might like. You know, expose it on a whim sometime. But yeah. I think for now, I want to keep it close. It'll to be my a chest. fun. Um, it'll be a fun little little side. I also just. Pref- I also just like the idea that it gradually drives people insane. The more and more they read, I feel like it would the series because they. It's just, just. It's one of those like non sequiturous things that just is there. Well, it's a great. It's one of my favorite bits in the third book where um, <laughs> Boone and Prometheus are investigating a murder, mm. and they track the murder to this really really dodgy part of like the London criminal underworld yeah. and it's like hidden beneath King's Cross Station and it's like this secret thing that requires like a password oh, and like yeah, yeah. identities to get in and Boone and Prometheus like go through hell to smuggle themselves into what they think is like a secret society meeting oh boy and it turns out that it's Avery Arbogast the American from the yeah. start of um, the first book has opened up a manatee fighting ring <laughs> What? And he's got all of like London's hardened criminals around him. <sighs> and basically in the middle of this what arena the... is a pool with like two caged manatees on That's either end. That's amazing. And everyone's put like all this money do on manatees, the manatees fighting. Do they fight? No, because he lets the manatees out and they just bob in the water. No, I mean, well, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, man, I, do, I didn't think they fought. Well, yeah, it, it turns, it, it all turns hairy very quickly because Avery Arbogast is standing there and the manatees are let out of the cages and Avery's like, and everyone's like cheering him, like, you know, ready for oh, blood. And, he's like, and Boone's kind of sitting there being like, Avery, what have you done? What have you done? What are like, you doing? He's like, he's like, you didn't Google manatees, did you? <laughs> no, you didn't. And then Avery's like, fight! Go fight! Do and the manatees it. just bob there because they're manatees. And it'd be like cat fighting. You put two cats in a ring and they just lie down and sleep. You're like, yeah, that, exactly. That was less exciting than I'd hoped. So, of course, it turns into a riot. No, um, it would. Um, that's but good. no, manatees, yeah, manatees will that's return. That's amazing. The um, manatees will return. If well, I promise you one thing about the sequels, it's manatees. Boone's gone, Prometheus gone, manatees, though. The manatees will so remain. actually, the rest of the series is, uh, is about Manatee Shepherd. Yes, that's When, it, when that's Boone up. becomes a manatee. Yes, he that, that, That's the he, secret. Or Boone and Prometheus adopt a manatee. Just and like a... Where would you... It'd be hard to keep, like, in a bathtub, I guess. Well, I suppose they're mammals, though. They get so. pretty big. Yeah, but they need water, don't, yeah, don't they? Do. they? I, I, I don't do know. Do they? I don't know how what? manatees work. <laughs> how do... I wish I did. I feel like that's probably... What it's I, irresponsible of me as a proponent of manatees... Yeah. ...who shares them... Uh, you know, who spreads them all throughout my work. Yeah. I really should have a greater understanding of the physio- physiology of manatees. Yeah, you're driving, really you're driving that car without a seatbelt on. I, I really am. It's, it's ridiculous. It's the I'm, only way to drive a manatee car. I'm playing a dangerous game. It's a dangerous yeah. game. Take it burned. So, um, okay, Promethea, right? We yeah. talked about it before. She's my favorite character. Um, Good. Uh, <laughs> she's just such a dick, but I love it. Um, she reminds me of... When I was much younger, and I was sort of growing up reading young adult fiction, and then obviously... If, adult fiction when I was way too young as is always the way with most yeah, writers yeah, um, there's a character in I'm not sure if you're familiar but the Edge Chronicles which is a no, Sky Pirates it's very fun it's sort of it's for kids but it's super dark at times cool. you know there's sword fighting there's guns death it's, it's, it's all the good stuff yeah it's very yeah. there's some really violent like character people get 
Someone gets dismembered at one point. Awesome. Like, it's really dark. Um, awesome. Very fun. And there's a character in that, one of the main characters of a later one, set sort of many years after the previous ones, and it's like a steampunk version of the world. And the main character in that, the minute that I started reading Prometheus, I was like, oh my god, they, that's... Like, it just... I had, like, one of those moments where I suddenly flashed back okay, to, awesome. to when I was Good. reading this book as a kid. And I had this memory of, like, sitting there reading it um, uh, at the top of my hill from where I live, because there's a really nice sort of spot... Um, when I was growing up and I, I like flashback immediately um, when I was reading it in your living room I was like oh my god I remember that moment like so clearly and vividly that's brilliant um, and for, that was just one of those moments where I was like that yeah <laughs> not sure what that says about the book but I just thought that was worth sharing because that was something no that, that's awesome that's, that's, yeah. re- that's a really cool thing to know yeah. um, nah it's, she's it's just lovely. she's yeah and she she does I mean for people who do find her you know a bit too much I mean it's it's funny because she I think maybe I found her a bit much because you notice she kind of disappears for huge swathes of this book. I think that makes her and work, though. Yeah. And, She's also that kind of... People do say that like, when she comes back, the moments where like she comes back in the tank yep. or comes and saves him from Draculius at the end are sort of almost punch the air moments where you're like, oh, Prometheus back! Yeah, you do. You're kind like, of lifts yeah, again, you know. Which is good. That's kind of what I was going for she, with she's it, the po- She's kind of like Poe Dameron. Yeah, that's kind of what... he'd be a bit much if he snarkier. was... Yes, it's well, much, much snarky. But in the sense Cameron. that when he comes, you're like, "Oh, Poe's he's back. He's yeah, doing it," yeah. you know. And that's kind of. But I mean, she does. She definitely softens as they go on. But um, but she 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 doesn't stop being Promethea. Mm, I'm excited to way. see where she ends up. You'll going. see more depth to her. You yeah. definitely see more of what makes her tick and why she is the way she is. Mm. There's you do get a bit of her backstory and stuff in I think the third book, and like you get a lot more sort of of what her overall motivations are and kind of what her insecurities and stuff are in the second book, but. Those are glimmers. Yeah. Apart from that, she is always Prometheus Peters. Do you get... She is, I don't know if this is... Tell me if this is true for you when you write a character. Because I've always found this... Found this true when I meet people in real life as well as when I'm writing characters that you always start off with like a stereotype where you have like a bunch of things that make a stereotype of a person. Because that's how you meet people. Yeah, yeah. You're like, okay, you're tall. Like, say when I met you, I was like... You're really tall. Why are you so tall? No, that was I'm the tall. first thing I'm I noticed. Because I've, I, you know, I'd heard your voice on the podcast. I was like, what the, why is, why is he so tall? Like, what is going on? <laughs> like, and then I was like, okay, he's tall. He's a writer. And then I get that bits of bits of information. I add that to your appearance. I'm like, okay, there's my stereotype for gay. Sure, sure. And then when I get to know you more, I start to add detail. I add backstory. You, you know, when you're All writing a character, yeah, yeah. you start to add that stuff. You're like, okay, backstory, motivation, personality, speech patterns, traits. You know, other habits. And then eventually you have a whole character. Yeah. You, you know, you get like parents, you get all this other stuff that, that surrounds it. And that's how you get to know a person. It's often how you get to know characters as well. Because you have to start somewhere. So when you are creating a character, for instance, is that, do you find that's how you that's start? That's exactly how I do it. Mm. Because, you know, with Promethea, I mean, in the very, very first high school draft, Promethea, back in those like three original stories I wrote back in school, the idea was that every story, because I was very influenced by Doctor Who to a fault, the idea was that every story boom would have like a different female companion sort of going on his adventures. Not a not a romantic one, but just like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like Prometheus was just sort of a... Back then, Prometheus Peters was literally... She was nothing like the character she ended up being in this. She was just sort of a character who was there. Yeah. When I rewrote it, I was like, I actually want her to be different. And I was like, what if I just make her... Well, pretty much the character you met, like really snarky. And at first yeah. I was like, I just wanted her to be a scene stealer. I want to have the best lines, really snarky, really immature, horrible temper. Oh, yeah. Like just, you know, no... No sense of decorum, really doesn't care about anyone else, kind of selfish, kind of loud mouth, yeah. kind of delights in belittling and making Boone miserable. Oh, yes. And enjoys when he's, of, when he's suffering. Yeah, and then I thought, but of course, in the end, she'll come true and she'll be a hero and she'll yeah. sort of help save the day. And that was kind of her, I guess, her in the first book. And then in the second book, there was a scene I write between Boone and Promethea where 
you know, she kind of opens up a bit and I was like, that's, and that kind of was a moment, a real sort of gateway opening moment for me where I was like, oh, okay, I actually understand a lot more about you now. And when mm. I came to writing the, I think it was the third book, I originally had this whole approach where Prometheus' backstory was going to be a huge part of it. Yeah. And her backstory actually got, as I was developing it, and it was going to be a huge fixture in the book, actually got quite dark. Mm. Like quite, not not dark, dark, not, not dark in the way Boone's is where it's like people... You know, people sort of die horribly and stuff like that. And, but, you know, there's guns and vampires mm. stuff like that. But dark in a more real kind of just... Darker than you'd think. Yeah, darker. Just kind of like you'd hear that and you'd be like, oh, that's a bit grim. But like not yeah. in a... not in a, I don't, It's not in like a horrible Probably, over-the-top misery porn way, but just in a, the backstory sort of is a bit... Just, re- real, like dark realistically. Yeah. Is that... And yeah. basically in my mind that, that relationship... That, not that relationship, but rather that backstory stayed as part, even though it didn't make it into the books. Yeah. You get a glimmer of it. You sort of find out a little bit about kind of what went on. Yeah. Okay. But, um, but it definitely, yeah, it's, it's still in my mind, that's part of who she is. In my mind, yeah, that's sure. part of sort of, that, that is canon. That's head canon. That's yeah. why Prometheus is the way she is. That's all in my head. And that all came back from sort of writing this stuff and realizing I wasn't going to use it because there was no place for it in the story. Mm. But it's still sort of there. And it all kind of, I always think shape that, this overall idea of who Prometheus Peters is. I think that and really informs everyone else. That informs like the. I mean, so one of the, the there are two ways I think you can create characters, and one of them is really good, and one of them is what George R. R. Martin started to do after a while, where like, not not to I don't, <laughs> a lot of shade being thrown at George R. R. Martin <laughs> yeah, in this no, podcast. No, I, I, I think he's a genius. Yeah, he's great. Um, but yeah. we are yeah, shot. We're looking at you. We know you're there, George. Yeah, no, sh- he's sitting here listening, crying like the yeah. razor hovering above his wrist. Yeah, he's like, this is too much. Um, this is yeah. If you're listening, George, I'm sorry. But um, <laughs> so like when you create a character, you know, you have those unspoken things, the silences that make them feel like a real person. Yeah, you know, sure. um, the the stuff that we don't tell. But you know, I, someone once said to me that every person and every character. So every person and every good character has some secret that they keep that no one else knows about. And you have to know it as a writer to make the character realized, you know. It has to be something that they hold so close and secret that no one else knows, and that makes them real and realized, you know. Um, and often it's, it's a secret that they tell themselves um, that isn't true. Yeah, um, sure. That's often the way. So it's a, it's, a, it's a truth that they believe about the world that is fundamentally not true. Um, and that's where catharsis comes from, is when you realize those things aren't true and you reset your worldview. But one of the things that George R. R. Martin started doing instead of that when he was... Because he had so many characters. Is he was like, okay, I need a character in this location to do this thing. So then he would pull out his family trees. Um, and he would he would get his family trees and he would, you know, go down the family trees and be like, okay, uh, these two people had a baby and it's this guy who lives in this place. And that's how he built characters is from these family trees. Which sounds, in theory, like a good idea... Because you have like a set of parents and a location and stuff. Yeah, but it's, it's actually something I call chessboard writing, which yes. is something when like, you know, particularly coming into writing the second Boone Shepherd book, which was the hardest book to write, when I started writing it and I didn't really know what the plot was going to be, and I kind of looked at it and I was like, okay. And I did the same thing when I first tried to write a sequel to Windmills, when I sort of looked at it and I was like, okay, so what's, what's the layout of my chessboard? What pieces do I have right now? Yeah. So this... Character A is at this point. Character B is at this point. Like basically have, had a look through, saw what were all the pieces who were on the board at that time. Yep. Who were the characters who were in play? Who were the minor characters who have been established that I can do more with? Who were the characters who have been mentioned? Yep. Who are these people and what can I do Just with get them? the lay of the land. Which I actually think, for me anyway, that's the wrong way to write. Because to me, if you're continuing something, it shouldn't be a matter of where are my pieces and how can I play them against each other to make yep. it entertaining? Because then you're actually... 
then you actually are making a story up. It's well, not organically sort of, what the next, the organic yeah, next part of the story is. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you're if you're going to write a sequel, it should be because you're like, of course, that's what happens next. Of course, yeah. But now I understand the, how it sort of continues. Yeah, like the, it all should make sense. It should just come to you. The best moments for me when I'm writing a sequel of anything, um, and I've been I've been writing the I'm actually writing the third volume in this stupidly long series of working on. Yeah, sure. I was like, this is it'll be a brief book. It's a two hundred thousand words. Um, anyway, but so I'm writing this, and and the, my favorite parts are when I'm writing a scene, and I'm like, okay, they're you know they're at a dock or something, and a character's going to come up to them, and they're going to have an interaction, and I go, and I start writing it, and I'm like, oh my god, that's this person from earlier from the first book, yeah, yeah, and you like cool. it just happens, and you're like, whole what? That's amazing, and you get excited, and you're like, oh, it's them again, and they kind of appear, yeah, and, yeah, uh, which that is always very it, good, yeah, and it lacks. I always feel like it lacks that flair if you've planned for them to come back. In that scene? Yeah, well, I mean, like, it's... I mean, I had a moment writing my play Beyond Babylon where, you know, I thought it was going to have one ending that had a different... I'm not going to bother going into it because we've been talking for a really long time. But basically, the ending... It was only in the last moment of the play where I realized what the ending was. Mm. And the ending is the best part. The twist at the end is the best part of the play. Yeah. The twist is what ties the whole thing together and, like, lends so much context and weight to everything that's gone beforehand. Yeah. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, if I'd actually ended that play the way I intended to end it, like, and it's the kind of twist where one of the major characters, there are only two major characters in the play. Yeah. There are only two characters in the play. One of them is not who you think they are. And uh, I spent okay. the whole time writing that script thinking he was who I thought he was. Uh. And at the end, I was like, oh, you're actually not at all. You've been hiding something this whole time. Okay. And suddenly it was like, okay, so everything that's written beforehand yeah. was written not with the intention of him revealing this thing about himself at the end. Yeah. But. Oh, okay. But like, yeah. with him, with him, but the thing is when I went back, I actually saw clues. There were lines he had that I was like... You're like, he was kind was of like, doing this for me the whole time. Yeah, I was like... It's he, weird how that happened. He knew what he was doing. I was like, I'm just going to leave that there. I'm actually yeah. just going to leave that there. So and I'm not cool. going to change anything. And again, like it was... I actually think that the reason I love that twist... And people still say to me the twist in Beyond Babylon was one of the most... Like people who saw that play... Like mm. people have seen plays since then and I've had twists in there. And I've actually had people been like, oh, even the play, if the play is like much more well-written, much more craft than Beyond Babylon, people have been like to me, oh, yeah, I prefer Beyond Babylon. I was like, why? And he was like, oh, because the twist was just so good. Because yeah. nobody saw it coming. Well, that's Because that, I didn't see it coming. That's the best. Because, I mean, it's, it's the opposite of the M. Night Shyamalan effect. Yeah. Where, because you're not expecting the twist. That's why it's good. Yeah. You know, and like, you, I mean, his biggest problem is a, script writer but dude it's the same as I was saying before like you know if I'm feeling gripped by the story the audience is hopefully going to be feeling gripped by yeah, the story yeah they're in it you know? that's why you know I try to I don't try to write anything that bores me like I try to skip over any boring scenes because I'm like if I'm bored the audience is probably going to be bored if mm. I feel like it's a chore the audience is probably going to feel like it's a chore mm. and I mean those twists I mean it's so rare that you get those organic kick-ass twists that come out of nowhere yeah. and change everything but for me it's like well when that happens it's like well okay if if me as a person writing and creating this story was shocked by it, then, then the audience sure as hell is going to be shocked Absolutely. by it. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that again comes from, you don't get that unless you're writing a lot. Yeah. Because those, those things happen absolutely. so rarely, you know. I, I just finished Mad Men, finally. Um, oh my God. And the, the last episode of that, there's a moment where two characters, out of nowhere, suddenly realize they're in love with each other. And you, at first, you're like, hang on, what? And then after a few seconds when they're talking, you're like, they've been in love with, with each other for years yeah. oh, like, yeah. like that moment is so I did not see it coming like and it's almost yeah. rom-com-y but it kind of works but it, it feels organic and it doesn't feel engineered and if I just like, yeah because you realise at the same time you're like oh my god they've been in love for years and they didn't know it and now like yeah it, it, yeah. it should be rom-com-y but it works it and works. that's that's because it feels like the, the script writers were in the room doing their doing their scripts and they were like okay, how are we going to end it and someone went oh my god they've been in love for years yes. and everyone went yes 
They have. Like, and that's, you know, getting those moments, they're so amazing. And that's it. There's like, you know, and Boone Shepard definitely had a couple of those in um, in one of the later books. There's a moment that I was like, oh, of course. Yeah, like, I get it now. And it's, it's, it's great. Those are probably the most satisfying thing as a writer is having those moments. Like, being oh, surprised by your own story. Like, how good is that? That's something that you are basically making up in your head. And it surprises can you. Can surprise you and yeah. shock you and make you gasp in the same way that you want an audience to be surprised Just, and shocked and gasping. Which makes no sense. It makes no sense at people, all. Who cares? It's people great. Don't, people don't, they're like, what are you, that's not a, th-. but no, it absolutely happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. It's it, great. And, you know, all you can do is kind of take credit for it and say, yeah, I was smart enough to think of that. I had I a, wasn't. I planned it. Well, all. somewhere in your brain you did. Somewhere. I know, but I had no conscious no. part in that. <laughs> None so, of my training, you know? You know, anyway, it's good. All right, well, I think that's probably a good... Um, so if, uh, where can people pick it up, the best place? Um, um, look, at the moment, I right now, as of recording, I don't know, because I don't know what the distributor's done. Yeah, um, bellfrogbooks.com? Well, Bellfrog Books, yeah. So you can order an ebook online from bellfrogbooks.com. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can get an ebook or you can order the physical copy. Um, the distributor at the moment, is, as far as it being in bookstores, I mean, it's in... It's in readings. It's in a couple of other stores. I know that it's in a few, uh, quite a few stores I don't know about. Yep. But like, I honestly don't know who's stocking it. Um, and for all of our stuff, you know, you can hit us up on Patreon, Twitter, all the good stuff. Everything's in the show notes. Uh, so thanks, as always, for, for hey, having dude, a chat with for, me. Thanks for coming down and being at the book launch. It's been my pleasure. My book and um, giving me a chance to talk about it. Yeah. Because, I'm, like, I mean, it's, it's great for me because I've been sitting on all this stuff for so long <laughs> with nobody having read it yet mm. so actually finally getting the chance to kind of discuss what went into it and what yeah. happened and how it sort of came about mm. and where i want to go with this crazy silly ridiculous story yeah. has been an absolute pleasure so it's, it's been it's it's been awesome and um i'm sure whenever the second book comes out we'll <laughs> yeah. have to do this again <laughs> absolutely um, and like the gameplay is super fun <laughs> and like because those three things are there it's like it's exceptionally good I could do it in a heartbeat and make millions, but it would feel like gouging my soul out. Yeah, Jurassic Park's a little more like DDR. If Shrek is a fairy tale creature, can he actually own land and want to kick them off? Where did that come from? You have to make a lot of shit up to make good art. Yeah, yeah. That's, like, that's just the truth. Like, 